Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. David Dibble, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Thank you, Mr. Hine. It's great to see you. Always a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And, um, I, you know, recently I was going through my Instagram, as you know, because I sent it to you. Why didn't you reply anyway, man? Wasn't it a great memory for you, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> it was. I'm surprised I didn't reply. I thought in my head I did. Um, I think that's sort of my things but i think i say it out loud but it really i know i'm the same way but it was a picture of us up uh, uh did you say it was uh big cottonwood canyon or little cottonwood canyon little little cottonwood canyon up in the albion basin above alta ski resort yeah the one time we and went painting together plain air painter at the time and so i said hey jeff we're gonna go out plain air painting let's let's make it happen and yeah it was a we, blast i drag you I'm still not a plain air painter. Awesome. I'm still trying hard, which is why I'm excited to have you on here because you are, you are top. I mean, you are up there among all plain air painters, one of the best out there. So it's a huge, Thank huge you, honor to have you here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So tell me a little bit about your past. I know you're relatively new to the fine art field, but you've been an artist a really long time doing, you kind of had your your hands in a lot of different areas of the art world. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in painting and what led you to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm going to go kind of rewind all the way back to the beginning and we'll talk more about inspiration stuff. I'm sure as we go on, it'll be peppered throughout, but I grew up on a farm in West Layton, Utah. And those who know the Wasatch Front and especially Layton, you knew that, especially back in the day, um, there was a difference between West Layton and regular Layton, right? Mm -hmm. Regular Layton was where all the city folks lived. And then West Layton was in the boondocks where all the farmers were. And so I grew up there at a young age, you know, nearest friend neighbor was an hour, uh, hour, a mile away. Jeez. And so as a little kid, that's a long way away. So you would, I spent a lot of time just wandering around the fields and much to uh, grandpa Dibble's chagrin. I wasn't a great farmer initially, and I wanted to just be in nature a lot. I would just hmm. stare at the clouds and walk around and, and loved being in nature a ton. After school, I would come home and I daydream in school about trees and nature and hiking. And then I would come home and pack my little scout backpack and I'd go hike down in the fields because I just, I, it was very romantic to me to be in nature. And, and especially now I look back and I think, man, that was a really formative time Plus, I was one of seven kids in a small home and relatively small. It wasn't tiny, but but it wasn't like I had a lot of space to myself at home inside. And so I learned to really go outside to nature for that kind of personal time and space that I really loved and, and craved. And I think being where we were, we were down in the valley. So I was looking at the mountains a lot. Um, kind of dreaming about being in them, but we weren't close enough to really be in them, as, at least not as a little kid. And so I was, it was a lot of flat kind of 
crafted um, man-made ground in this in if that makes sense of like mm -hmm. farmed cultivated fields and so a lot of like geometry straight lines man's interaction with nature and then with a backdrop of kind of space and the expansiveness of the west both in the largeness of mountains as well as the looking out to the west and in, in antelope island with big skies and and just big nature mm -hmm. and so i had this kind of combination of man's interaction with kind of expansive nature combined in a way that in a young age i think was really formative in ways that i didn't realize at the time but if i needed to think if i needed to, time to just kind of connect even with with god in ways um i would go out into the fields and it was at a young age i was really forming that connection with with divine with nature with something bigger than myself and it was connected to both landscape and also weather conditions, environment, time of day, and what the what the sky was like. It seemed like everything around me in the farm looked different every day, depending on what it what the weather was doing. Because we were inside of the weather so much when we were working in the fields, and we were just always connected to outside. Like work was something you did outside typically, and so I I came to really kind of see emotional cycles and and what um, connect emotions to what the environment was doing if that makes makes sense it does but i gotta tell you this sounds like a movie plot i mean i'm imagining this uh manly farmer you know coming out of his house in the morning to do whatever he does throw hay bales around and seeing his grandson sitting there just gazing at the clouds and going man up kid you know? yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. stop that stop looking at clouds and get out here and help me you know Oh, that's that's funny much. you say that. There, that's almost verbatim from what Grandpa Dibble would say. He'd like he'd say, "Get your head out of the clouds." And oh my you. gosh, that's say, great. Um, I don't blame him. Like it took me some time to connect the idea of like work and effort to the beauty that I was seeing. Right. Yeah. And so it wasn't actually until I went. Uh, I worked at a Boy Scout camp when I was fifteen up in Yellowstone, near Yellowstone, and that that summer all of my friends around me i realized for the first time that um it didn't matter how funny you were it didn't matter anything else like how cool you thought you were you your value of what you brought to the staff was based on your work ethic hmm. and so the hierarchy of camp became established by who was the hardest worker and hmm. and were judged by that and it was and the camp um, director was really good to encourage that to encourage people to, to work hard and to find joy in work and so i came um a lot of my friends there i realized like they were um i don't quite know how to say it other than say that they were working super hard they weren't afraid of it and it was cool to be a hard worker yeah and so i came home from that summer really determined and excited to show my dad that i knew how to work now and that i had i'd figured that out and from then on I really loved the farm, both aesthetically as well as for what I was able to to learn and feel and do um, work-wise, and it became a real joy. And so, even though as a young kid, like I was figuring it out and I was, you know, a dreamer, I was grateful for the chance to connect kind of work ethic to dreaming and to yeah, imagination, yeah. those two together. Because you and I both know, like, that that's the only way that art can happen right? It's, mm -hmm. it's a dream and a plan and a lot of work. And yeah. if, if you're lacking on either one of those two, it's not going to work out well. 
Yeah, and so many artists have said, even on this podcast, it's like you just get your butt to the studio. You don't wait for inspiration. You just work, work, Absolutely. work. You know, it's, it's not this fluffy career where you just wait till something speaks to you. You got to put in the Absolutely. time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was a famous author who said, I, um, I only write when I'm inspired. And fortunately, inspiration strikes every day at 9 a.m. Hmm. And so he would just go in, like you, he would just go into the studio every day and say, I'm just going to type. And I know some authors as well that will go in and they their goal is to write for an hour and no matter what comes out of their head or just to write a page at, for the first half an hour or whatever, just, just to get working. The process of creation and then the inspiration comes later. So, yeah, that's true. So when did, sure. when did your staring at clouds and sort of daydreaming in the field turn into a creative endeavor. Right. So I was always drawing from a young age okay. um, and drawing a lot of like other kids in junior high were drawing like futuristic warriors. And I was drawing like campsites and trees. What? Are you serious? I, yeah. Like in my old journals, I look back and they were like campsites and tents with trees in the background. And there was just something really exciting to me about nature and wow being in it and so from a young age like that was really important to me and when i was daydreaming i literally it sounds hokey but it doesn't really sound hokey it sounds unusual it doesn't sound hokey at all i'm kind of envious because it's like i mean what authenticity you found yourself as a little kid and you're still that kid in your yeah. heart yeah in a lot of ways it's so true and a lot, even now, a lot of paintings that I'll do when I'm really trying to emotionally connect with a scene, I'll go back to a lot of those early memories on the farm and and how it was um, affecting me emotionally based on different weather conditions and things. So hmm. anyway, so yeah, huge impact. And then I was always drawing and got into high school, did a lot of art stuff, wasn't getting quite what I needed um, from art teachers. I think it took me some time to get comfortable with the idea of feedback. Mm -hmm. I also think that uh, from a young age, I was a people pleaser and part of me really wanted to make things right. I didn't want to make mistakes. I was afraid of mistakes. I'm sure a lot of kids are that same way, but early on the difference, what I could see, the gap of what I could see versus what I could produce what was visible to me. Right. On. I'm right. sure it was simple for you, right? And <laughs> yeah, of course. It's so frustrating. Because it's like, I, I feel it, I can see it, but I can't do it yet. Yeah. And so, so I learned how to like, be really careful. Cause I realized if I can just slow down and be really careful, then I can get closer to mm -hmm. closing that gap. But in that process, people would see what I was doing. They would praise your effort, especially when it was carefully done. Mm -hmm. And then I would realize, well, I want more of that praise. So I'm going to be more careful. Right. And so you would do more of that. And so for me, especially early on, I remember like drawing figures and faces and learning, okay, I'm going to start with one line. And if I make a mistake, I've got to erase it and then keep going with that line. And, and it was just, I didn't, I didn't understand the idea of general to specific. Right. Start. Well, none of us did. Yeah. And so I learned to be really careful rather than correct in my, in my drawing hmm. and cause that's what you're getting praised for. So I tightened up, I liked tight media, like, um, dry media, pencil, colored pencil stuff that I could control manhandle. Mm -hmm. Cause that's I could make things look good mm -hmm. from what I, 
And so that followed me into even college. So I, I went actually to a school for a while, to Weber State. Um, and then after a couple of years, I just felt like, no, this isn't quite what I want. It's not, it was a very contemporary program without a lot of skills-based training. And so everything I was doing was always wrong. It, like I was too tight. I was too much of an illustrator was the, the um, pejorative term that was- Yeah, shame around. on you, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And the fact was, the truth was, I did need to loosen up. I did need to be able to like let go of some of that control to get better. I just didn't know how to do it. And yeah, so yeah. they weren't the ones that I felt comfortable kind of giving that ownership to um, of my creative journey. So I um, ended up going to BYU, um, Brigham Young University for my undergrad. And suddenly one of the big reasons was I went and interviewed and kind of had them look through my portfolio. And everything that had been a liability before became a strength to, in their eyes. And Isn't that interesting? Specifically, they're like, oh, you're a really good draftsman. And you are really good at ob observing and you have creative ideas. And it's like, oh, okay. And so then, so I went there and Bob Barrett, Richard Hull, um, Beth Ann Anderson, some other of the professors there that were, there was a big strong push for draftsmanship and things. So I, I love that. I had to do a few um, oil paintings and I hated it. <laughs> I it. Same. It felt, it felt so messy, mm -hmm. right? And out of your control. And I, I didn't like it. And so I like kicking and screaming did a few paintings in college, but I saw, oh, this is, this is not my thing. And I was doing a big turning point kind of actually came a few turning points during that time. So um, I, you found this as well, but there's this bridge that you have to cross from, I like art to I'm going to be an artist, right? Mm -hmm. Professionally. And I had thought that I, again, the people pleaser in me thought that I had to do something um, responsible. Wait, you and thought so, that right through college? I mean, b before you went no, to, no. oh. So I guess I'm backing up just oh, a little. Okay. Okay. Say coming out of high school and, and I served uh, as a missionary for the Elias church in Brazil and coming home from my mission, I think I, I thought I was supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer or something. Oh, so um, that late, you still didn't know what you were going to be. No, hmm. which is funny because in reality, I had that was the only marketable skill I had. Like it wasn't like I was preparing to be anything else other than an artist. It mm -hmm. really was just in my mind to, cause I think all of us often will, will say things that people react in a way that you come to kind of give them the answer that they want, right? So they'll say, oh, well, what are you gonna do, right? When you're going into college? Well, I'm gonna, if you say I'm gonna be an artist, then especially in a very kind of thrifty conservative area, they're gonna say, well, that's fine for a hobby, but what are you really gonna do to support your family? Um, oh yeah. And I imagine and in a I, farm town, it's even more extreme. Yeah. And I had well-meaning teachers that would tell me that, like, yo, you're a really good artist. That'll be a good hobby for you. But you yeah. What are you really good? Yeah. And my parents' credit, they never did that. Like, they oh. were very supportive of things. My dad was, uh, in addition to being a farmer, was an educator and was my high school vice principal and things, which was was great. And so he they, they pushed education. And, and as long as I was working hard and moving forward and progressing in my, my life with good, positive choices, they were great with that and very supportive. Hmm. So it wasn't until after uh, my mission and then before college, when I had to choose a major, I was thinking, well, maybe I should do communications or something that sounds, I don't know, nebulous and responsible. And 
my mom said, actually, like, you've been given this gift for a reason of art and you need to see it through. <laughs> really? Yeah. 10 years, you're not doing that. That's fine. But just see where it goes for now and, and give it a chance. Wow. And so I, I had always really respected my mom and was, was grateful for the permission to follow that. And so that's when I realized, okay, like this really is what I've been preparing for. And I needed the, the, the permission to do that, I guess. Took me some wow. Time. My mom said the exact opposite. She's basically, <laughs> I mean, she was kind. My mom's kind and loving, but she, what I was hearing from my mom was you idiot. What are you thinking? You know, you, you can't do this. <laughs> um, so that's incredible that, that your mom was so supportive, especially because I'm sure your parents never knew a successful painter or artist. Yeah. My mom was actually an art minor in college and we had some of her paintings, watercolors up around the home and some art books and things at home. And actually my grandfather's cousin, George Dibble, was um, the art critic for the Salt Lake Tribune for years. He was a, 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 a professor of art at the University of Utah with okay. Lacan Stewart. And wow. was responsible for really bringing modernism and cubism specifically to Utah. Oh, okay. So, so there's something there that your, your yeah. mom could have a little bit of hope for her son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in hindsight, I think, man, I would have loved to have seen some successful artists and known them personally enough to be able to have confidence step into that. So we didn't know a lot of those people, but, but there was, the idea wasn't foreign to okay. them. And to their credit, like each of our, each of us as children have followed our own paths and they were always just so supportive of whatever that was. They didn't try and impose an idea on us and and that was really beautiful. They always kind of supported the best, the best desires in us. So that was pretty awesome. Yeah. So is. I art is for college, ended up going, like I said, to Weaver State, then to BYU and illustration, then thought, well, I guess I'm supposed to be a children's book illustrator or something, because mm -hmm. that's what all my professors are. And that's what we all go through, right? Like we mm -hmm. try on the shirt that our professors are wearing and it feels nice because they're confident in what they're doing. And then another big turning point came later on in my my senior career as a um in my undergrad so i was doing a lot of scratch board actually um, huh. and i remember every often teachers um, would say oh like that looks great that looks like mark summers who was was and is one of the most popular scratch board artists you've seen his work at like barnes and noble all the author portraits and things um, and one day I finally realized, okay, like people are telling me every time they see my work, that looks like, just like Mark Summers. And I didn't want to be the, the second best Mark Summers in the world. Right. Like I wanted to be my own person. So I realized I was going to need to change, um, what I, how I was doing things. And for my senior thesis project, I was supposed to do some, um, book illustrations for like a children's book. And I got halfway through and it just didn't feel right. It was like, this just isn't me. And I was facing graduation and I realized I looked back at all my work and whenever I'd had the choice of what to paint or draw in school, mm -hmm. I was painting a barn or a farm, or it was all the farm that was coming out like in, in my work, whenever I got to choose my assignment. And I realized I just really want to paint the farm. And so I, I put my thesis project on the shelf. And form and changed to do a sketchbook of the farm. I went and spent a few days every week for the semester at the farm, spent the night for a couple of days every week, and would just do ink watercolor sketches of the farm and pencil sketches. 
hmm. and just spent months drawing the farm and writing notes about it and just exploring it emotionally and as an artist in a way that I hadn't when I was younger because I didn't have the skills then. And that was my senior project was that sketchbook. And so that was a huge turning point for me to like really embrace what I wanted and, and understand what I wanted and know because I didn't, couldn't, didn't see it before. So how was that received by your professors? Because that doesn't sound like a children's book at all. Right. Yeah, they are actually really, really great about it hmm. and supportive of the idea. You know, sketchbooks in general are a huge part of any artistic process and historically have been, you know, Albert Durer and, and others. Um, uh, yeah, it's been a huge part of, of art. So they were fine. Okay. So they were really supportive to their credit. And then, but I didn't have, that was the start of the next like 10 years of, I don't have a way to make money out of this, but I just really like it. Okay. And that was like the next 10 years of my training. And so, which I think, frankly, every artist really needs. You need to have these parallel tracks of how I'm learning skills and, and creating art and my ability to make money in a financial way from that art need to be separate for a while until finally your skills are ready to kind of bring those two things together. I've seen students when they connect those things too quickly, they say, oh, like I, I sold a piece on Instagram, so I'm going to do more of that then they stop growing and they go into performance mode and they just kind of plateau and create that thing so they can sell it. Not and to I, mention you end up looking back and being like, why did I go out so early? My product yeah. wasn't refined enough yet. Absolutely. Yeah. So after BYU, I went to the farm. I, I stayed in the farmhouse with my grandma floor and had a studio there and just freelanced for about six to eight months, mostly doing getting graphic design jobs actually. Um, like logos and brochures, things that I had the skills for, but, you know, not as many people needed a huge or a, you know, a scratch board piece or a, a watercolor, or at least I wasn't work, walking in those circles yet. And so here again, I didn't have a lot of examples of gallery painters, especially landscape painters to really draw from, to know how to move forward. So it was in me, it wanted to be there, but I didn't know how to make it work yet. So after about eight months, I realized, okay, I'd, Professionally, I'm not where I'm at. My skills aren't there. My work isn't there. And I was, I needed more training. So I went back to, uh, went to grad school and I went and talked to my undergrad professor first and just said, Hey, here's my problem. I need help. What do I do? Like, I'm not where I need to be, where I need to be. And in, in hindsight, he was actually looking already to potentially, um, have me be a professor there in the program. And so he suggested graduate school at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so I went into his office expecting to like, just get some, um, I don't know, encouragement and came out half an hour later going to grad school in San Francisco. So wow. That was a big turning point. Grateful for him that he would suggest that. And so I ended up going there actually, but right before that, before I left, I realized Okay, another big turning point. I realized, okay, all the ideas that I have about the farm and about nature and things, what little watercolor children's book drawings or even little sketchbook drawings, like that's not going to cut it. Like everything I see in museums that are talking about those big ideas, they're big oil paintings. And mm -hmm. so even though I hate oil painting, I've got to learn it. I've got to figure it out. 
And so from one day to the next, I just went and like bought a canvas. I don't know if it was even sized or not. I just like bought a canvas at the fabric store uh -huh. and like stretched it around some stretcher bars and, and did a painting and then did a big painting based and big for me at the time. It was like three feet or something, which felt big, then. Mm -hmm. but it was this big kind of like contemporary, um, symbolic piece, uh, that I was into. So I, I painted that and it was a, and I did all the reference and took the photo shoots and like, was like, okay, I'm not going to cut corners anymore. I'm just going to do everything that I was taught in school, the best that I can mm -hmm. and spend as much as I can to do it. Right. And so then I finished that and then went to graduate school in San Francisco. And then they only oil painted there. And hmm. so I, um, and it was mostly landscape. There was actually the landscape class that Bill Mon taught William hmm. Mon. Um, taught there. And you're, if you've heard stories of little kids in Brooklyn in, in the early part of the century when, when baseball was at its kind of peak and prime and they were like looking through the slats of the the part, the of the ballpark, just hoping to be able to see one of their heroes, right? Because they couldn't afford to get into the park. Like that was me in this landscape painting class. We were all, all the graduate students were in a big parking garage where they had partitioned off the class spaces really and and so the landscape painting class was like down the garage and covered you know surrounded by partitions but i would go because i wasn't ready for that in the semester progression like i wasn't going to take it for another year or six months or something and so i would go in my breaks a bigger painting class figure drawing i would go and just listen at the gap of really because it was just like gospel truth like dripping like honey from the heavens it was just like atmospheric perspective and color things that i just hadn't known about before i'd seen it kind of and observed it in nature but i didn't really understand it yet and so listening to that was just like pure joy to me and i wanted it so bad and because i've always loved the figure and i love painting and drawing the figure but everybody has their thing that they're passionate about and for right. me it was it was just pure nature and so I, you know, my love of figure was kind of built on top of my love of landscape. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that class was just, I was so excited to be, to be there. So I, again, every, anytime I had a choice for a class in grad school, I was painting a landscape painting and just kind of figuring out how to, how to oil paint and doing a lot of bad paintings along the way, but it wasn't. And in the summers, I was still actually working at Boy Scout camps. Hmm. Um, so I would go, I'd take the summers off. I'd go out to Catalina Island where I worked for a lot of summers running the aquatic program and things there, learn to love the ocean and, and things there. And okay. then would come back and go back to school and paint. And were you still single at the time? I'm just trying to get a picture of what your life was like. Right. So this is kind of mid to late twenties when I'm in grad school now. Okay. And, um, and I thought I wasn't, um, yeah, I wasn't sure if I would find somebody to marry in San Francisco because I had been around a lot of big groups of, of single people and hadn't gotten married yet, despite my best efforts. It seemed like, I don't know if it's same thing, same thing for you, but it seemed like everyone that you poured your heart out wasn't sure that they felt the same way and ever too. And then everyone that uh, was sure that I was the one didn't feel right for me. So mm -hmm. it just was mm -hmm. not connecting. But then I met my wife in San Francisco and oh. we were... We dated for a time there and then we're married. So, um, so during graduate school that happened after graduate school, moved back to Utah. She was a dancer actually is a dancer. 
and had put her graduate school on hold while I finished up my um, school. And then at that point, um, actually, I mean, this is kind of personal, but we'll say it on their podcast. Awesome. We couldn't have kids for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so we felt like, well, let's, let's go and finish up her grad school then. And so we looked at a lot of schools um, around the country and applied to the best ones, most of which were in New York City. She got into her the top two. And so wow. we went to, to New York for her graduate school. I had just barely gotten into my first gallery and actually, it was the gallery director that knew some of the wealthy clients that had a boat out in the harbor of Catalina Island, where I worked as a scout hmm. or, a boy, or as a scout leader. And so they saw I'd given them one of my um, prints, and they had it up on their their wall. And the gallery owner saw that, and then contacted me and put me in the gallery. Excellent. So this is weird roundabout way, right? I'm yeah. sure you can see career too. Oh yeah. So many connections or things you never could have planned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely parallels in your story to mine, for sure. Yeah. And so then um, I just gotten into a gallery, taking up a bunch of paintings. I was super naive about how the gallery world worked. I just thought, well, you, you take them some paintings and then they sell those paintings and then you do more paintings and you just kind of ride the wave like a surfer and that's it. What is, what's not to work? But we got to New York. Um, we drove we slept in the back of the moving truck along the way. I, and <laughs> That's classic. We, just, we left just enough space for our tent to get set up into the, our backpacking tent. And then I uh, would use my camp stove and we'd stop at, um, at the rest stops along the way. And I'd cook, you know, ramen for us on our, wow. on our little camp stove. And we'd, we like didn't spend any money along the way. And, and so we got across the country um, and then we drove across the George Washington Bridge and then they charged us like, I don't know, it was like $50 to cross the bridge because we were towing our Jeep. And it was just so much more expensive than I expected. And it was like this slap in the face of like, welcome to New York and real life's going to be a lot more expensive here. Mm -hmm. And so I had thought, oh, well, maybe it'll be this amount and we can kind of make it. And I had freelance jobs going on too on the side. And, and then we got there and it turned out it was like, twice as much as I had expected. I guess I just wasn't budgeting well. I don't know, but it was a lot of money. And then a month after we got there in 2008, in the fall is when the financial crash happened. Wow. So nobody was buying paintings, especially not mine. They weren't great paintings. And so I was quickly running out of options. I didn't know what to do. I was gonna tempt for a law firm. Um, some people in the church congregation there were lawyers. Most people were lawyers or bankers there. So I'm like, oh, well, okay, I guess I'll do whatever to make money. And then somebody in the um, area worked for Blue Sky Studios, the animation studios, and invited me to submit my portfolio. And so I printed off a bunch of my oil paintings um, that I had photos of that had been sold or whatever, and bound them together at Kinko's and took my portfolio over and said, well, okay, here, here's my work. And I should back up and say, I hated digital painting at that point because mm -hmm. I didn't like video games and I wanted, I wanted real things, right? Right, That's right. That's why I wanted oil paint, because I wanted real experiences. I wanted tactile things that I could touch. And I was that kid in college that would come home at night and like light an oil lamp on the table and like get a parchment paper and my quill pen with an inkwell because it <laughs> felt more real and exciting. And pure, yeah. <laughs> so I'd been forced to do a digital class in college um, or two, but I hated it. And so I was like, really? no, this is 
this isn't me. And so then, but I was facing like, we were facing ruin in New York. I'm like, well, we can't go home. She just started school. And so we, uh, she sat me down actually, Liz did, my wife, at the computer. She looked up Blue Sky's website, said, look, they're gonna do, they need a color artist and you taught color theory. I taught an adjunct class at Weber State. And so you should be a color artist. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess. I didn't even know what I was applying for really. I just took my portfolio over. And they they emailed me and said, hey, let's give it a try for a couple of weeks, like come in and talk to us. And I went in expecting to have a big art conversation about my work and how, if it was gonna work for the studio or whatever. And he just kind of set my portfolio aside. The art director did, Tom Cardone. He had worked, he brought digital painting to Disney back in the day. He had worked with Ed Catmull and some of the early digital people on developing digital painting. And then he kind of brought digital painting to Disney early. And mm -hmm. so then he came back to New York to Blue Sky. He said, well, let's go meet, meet everybody. Let's go talk to the crew. So we walked around and talked to people and, and I was, um, it was fun to meet people and it was, it was, they were great. And then we were done and I, and I thought, well, okay, when's the interview going to start? And he said, well, let's try it out for a couple of weeks. And I realized, oh, that's the interview just happened. Like my work, like he looked at that enough to know that he liked it, that I could do what they needed me to do. So it, that wasn't the question that we were discussing. The question was, are you a good fit with the team? Yeah. And it was, and that was the important part because working together as a team, as you know, is like vital. And mm -hmm. over the period of six years that I was there at Blue Sky, I saw multiple people come and, and apply for work that were really industry. Um, they had a ton of industry experience. They were much better artists than I was. Um, but you know, other people in the supply chain would say, yeah, they're not a good fit for the team. Like they're not a good team player. They don't know how to work with people. Well, they're a prima donna, whatever it was and they wouldn't get hired there. And I realized like you, the product that you create has to be backed up by your ability to be good to work with. Like people are buying you as the artist as much as they're buying your work. Oh man, that's so true. So, I, got, I got to tell you two things. This is, I try not to talk about myself, but I am tripping by how sim similar your path is to mine. Cause I honestly thought that you took a totally different path and I won't go into what I thought, but, um, First of all, to your point about you have to you have to back up your work with social skills. I mean, it's I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but I I got a painting from an artist once. I bought a painting by an artist, and then I met the artist. And as soon as I got home, I took it off the wall and put it in the basement. <laughs> I was like, I can't even look at this painting anymore now that I know who this artist is. Like, know their personality. I couldn't even look at it. And that, maybe that's wrong, but it, I think there's really something to that. Like, if you if you can't appreciate a person as a person, it's really tough to appreciate what they create. So I, I really yeah. think there's something to that. But the thing that's similar between you and I is that when I was in school, it was my undergrad, for which I never graduated, partly because of this. When I was in school, a, one, a, a classmate came up behind me and said, hey, you could work for Avalanche Software, which was eventually bought out by Disney here in Salt Lake. Right. And I was like, yep. no, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in video games. I'm like you, I, didn't, I never played video games, not my thing. But he's, but I made the mistake of going home and telling my mom, or my mom, oh my gosh, Freudian slip there, telling my wife 
<laughs> what he told me I could make. And she's like, okay, I've been supportive all this time, but that's an artist and that's a salary. <laughs> You're going to try this. And I'm like, no. Yeah. So I did it, but I only lasted two months. Um, but it was a cool job. It was a really great job. The problem was every night, all the guys stayed there till like four in the morning playing video games. And I'm like, I just don't fit in here. This is not my crowd. And so I couldn't last more than two months. They were incredible artists, but it just wasn't my, wasn't my crowd. So I ended up quitting. Totally. Yeah. But it's funny how similar the situation was between you and I. <laughs> totally. And I, and I know a lot of people that worked there at Avalanche that are great artists. Yeah. That worked there for a long Incredible. time. Incredible. And, and did, did great work. Um, and it, uh, one of the blessings of it that I found at Blue Sky, and you probably found there for a time too, was that there's power in creative feedback with it, with the creative team, mm -hmm. right? Because I could, when I was having, a tr having trouble with a painting, I could have somebody else come over these amazing color artists and look over my shoulder and say like, okay, we'll do this and do that and maybe fix this and look at this and look at that. There was this immediate feedback loop that was really powerful and that everyone knew that everybody else was professional. So you didn't have to try and prove that to each other. You could just, um, you just create and be supportive of other people creating too and be helpful in that process. So it was really exciting to where, it wasn't, it was a studio where people weren't trying to protect their jobs by maintaining secrecy of their process. It was just very open of how people would create. So it was really exciting that way. So like, plus I was painting where, so in film, there's three jobs in the design department, right? Um, Cause it's a production line and it, think of it like a building a house where you have an architect and a design team and then interior designers. And then you have all the contractors that build the thing. Mm -hmm. And so you have in a, in a film, at least at Blue Sky at the time, we had like 20, 25 people in the design department and then about 700, 500 people in the production department, right? So a lot of people to build the film and a few people to design the film. Okay, but and just to, I want to clarify here something though. You said a while back that you didn't like video games, so this wasn't, but this is a film place or a video game place? It's film. Oh, so why did you say, why did you make that comment about video games? That was... Sure. I think it was just, I equated anything digital. Oh, with okay. Loathing of, of video games. Right? <laughs> loathing, that's a strong word. So, that's too much. Okay. So it's film. So it's a very different thing than what I did at Avalanche. Film, I would have found much more interesting, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's why I stayed for so long because I, my preconceptions were not correct. Yeah, no way. What, what, what it really was. And so finally it was like, okay, I'll do digital painting and I'll go there. And then I realized that most of the digital painters in the design department were fine artists that there's, because there's three basic jobs in a design department, there's character design, there's layout set design, and then there's color. And so, cause for every, for every film, there has to be three things, a story setting and character, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have the people designing the characters just in isolation. You have the people designing the, the world and the environment, but usually that's just line drawing mm -hmm. or sometimes they're computer modeling. 
but and then there's the color artists who basically bring those things together and create the color and the mood like a big coloring book right mm -hmm. so you're doing it digitally so i was painting over the top of other people's layouts that were beautifully designed layouts so it really was a training ground of painting over people's good art and realizing what good composition looked like wow right? that's that pretty awesome experience yeah, it was yeah fabulous and the other thing it did for me is that it it posed problems that I wouldn't have naturally posed to myself. So it was like, okay, here's the character, here's the script. Because when you get a new um, series of color keys for a, a sequence, they'll always, when you come onto a new film, the first few days is always the script. They come and hand you a, a big bundle of script and say, read this and start circling all the things that you think are visual within the script. And then you have an art director who's created a visual kind of style guide, or sometimes they call it a, a color script, which is basically like a little a little painting for every scene mm -hmm. so that you can see in a chronological way what the color and light are going to do throughout the entire film. So it's like a color storyboard for an entire film. So you're charting everything out from start to finish because the film, right, emotionally, the color and light are going to arc and change as you lead the audience through the story, if that makes sense. I think so. Yeah. So the same way that a, a story builds up to a climax and an arc and, and there's change happening within a character, the color and light, uh, everything visually is supposed to support that story journey. So it's about learning to identify what those major themes are and then start to use the tools of painting to support and tell that story to the audience. I can't so wait that, to hear how you apply this to fine art. I don't want to push you ahead. I want you to continue on the, this, <laughs> well, we, in yeah, this so direction. I'll, but I mean, because I know your work just has this cinematic feel to it. Um, but go ahead and continue what you're saying, because I don't, I don't want to skip ahead. But I do, I am excited to hear how you apply this to paint. Well, I need to, I need to move faster. It's the curse of being a professor. No, no, you're not, you're doing great. I'm just like, so I'm like, a, it's like you said that Brooklyn analogy you made. Now I'm the kid looking through the fence posts and trying to see what's next, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. It was like yeah. that. And it was like that at Blue Sky too. Like it was, it was a magic place. And we, so we were part of 20th Century Fox and at that time, and then Disney bought Blue Sky later on. And then they disbanded the studio a few years ago. Okay. Um, during the pandemic, when they were just bleeding cash from, you know, all their parks and their their cruise ships being closed down, like it didn't take long to for people in a committee to look at a spreadsheet and say, oh well, you know, this this studio's bleeding money, and we can stop that hole. So, so it just didn't work out, unfortunately, in the end. But for those six years, like it was. It was awesome and it was so exciting to be part of a creative team and to like we go to other movies from other companies pixar disney whatever that would come into the studio mm -hmm. or into the theater rather. they would the studio would just rent out a theater um across you know a few blocks away in new york where we were and we just all as a crew walk down and see the movie together for the afternoon and so like getting paid to go see movies and to it was just a really exciting time to be in a collaborative environment, telling stories visually and learning visually. And like I said, those other artists, um, there many of them were fine artists, had gallery backgrounds, were doing gallery painting on the side. And so it's this weird plug-in to where every part of the pipeline in a film requires different skill sets. 
So there were people in development R&D of the computer part that were engineers from NASA who had left NASA to come and work on the film. Wow. On different films. Because really studios are what they are because they're the ones that made up the technology and are making up the technology of how to do that visually with a computer. Mm. It's not like there's this computer store where you go to and buy software that tells you how to, how to make these movies. Like they are the research people that are developing the software. So it's yeah. a largely technical, uh, most of it's a very technical exercise that has some artistry that kind of guides the process, if that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so within design specifically, the color, the color artists were gallery painters largely. That's the, that's how you get that skill is being a landscape painter mm -hmm. and the character artists, like they weren't painters. They were people who had gone through illustration, um, or other, um, um, sometimes even like industrial design programs. They had those skills to be a character designer and the layout artists kind of similar. They were mostly illustrators but the color artists were mostly fine artists. Hmm. And so it's this weird thing where we're all working together, but we have these different backgrounds and skill sets that come to play that prepare you to be able to, to do what needs to be done. Hmm. So being able to, to being forced to confront problems that I wouldn't have chosen to where, and they were constantly changing as the directors changed their minds. So let's say I did a scene and it was like a winter scene. And then the director would say, okay, that's great. We'd see it in up in rounds, put it up on the screen. They'd say, that's great, but the script changed and it's now snowing. Oh, okay. And so I'd make, I'd repaint the whole thing, you know, all five color keys or 10 color keys for that scene. And now it's snowing and they'd say, okay, that's great. But now it's actually just overcast. Oh, okay. So then I'd repaint them again and okay, now it's sunny. Oh, okay. So let's repaint that again, sunny. And just having to go get reference to solve visual problems that um weren't immediately available if that makes sense like it yeah. wasn't wasn't like i had somebody giving me a, a stack of reference saying this is how this is the photo that i want you to copy to get this sunny day right i had to just do what that looked like and use those tools to try and tell the story the best way i could so but these paintings these paintings were they like just a very sophisticated portion of a storyboard or were they actually used in the film so they were just basically color storyboards. Okay. So then they would use those down the pipeline, people in lighting, after they built everything in three-dimension geometry, they would, the lighters would look at our color key paintings and mm. they would try and use their lights to make it look like our painting. Right. Awesome. So we were like giving them a guide to, to make the film look like that. Yeah. And it would go back and forth to where they would, they would do the best they could. And then they would send us a screenshot back of this is what it looks like now that it's built in three dimensions. And then we would paint over that. So we'll simplify this, warm this up, make this change over here, put the light here instead. And then they would do that. So it was a back and forth um, transition that way. Hmm. So it's funny now that I do that in my own work to where like you can see the watermelon over here. Like, yeah. Sometimes I'll like, a picture of that with my phone with where it's at now and then go back to photoshop make 20 30 40 different changes over the top and then that becomes my new reference to paint from right hmm. so it's back and forth and back and forth between traditional and digital in a way that really changed the way that i painted and because you remember before when i was young that idea of being really careful and scared to make mistakes yeah it was bringing that into my my time at blue sky still there was that was trailing me 
And digital really gave me the courage to overcome that because everything I could throw the layer away. And it wasn't like I was um, starting again on an, on an oil painting. Cause as you know, if you decide to move a figure somewhere or put a telephone pole somewhere and it's not right, you've wasted then, so much time. Yeah. Oh man. To repaint everything. And so yeah. digitally to be able to try 50 different ideas and then throw it away if I didn't want it, like hugely took a lot of the anxiety out of painting for me and liberated me to trip, to be really bold in ways that I hadn't been before. Yeah. And I imagine it takes a lot. Well, I guess this is sort of maybe just saying the same thing in a different way, but the fear, because it sounds to me like you've really planned ahead. So by the time you start a painting, even though you might go back in and photograph with your phone and make adjustments, by the time you start a painting, it sounds like you've really thought this through. So Absolutely. unlike we did it, we did a podcast on Vermeer. I'm not Vermeer, Velasquez. I uh, just recently posted it's and like he's, yeah. yeah. And he's one of those artists that a lot of historians believe that he just worked directly on the canvas and which is how I've been working for the past 14 years. And it's brutally, I mean, it's so scary because like you just said it, it's like, oh my gosh, what if you have to move something and you've just devoted two months to that figure? Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's really, I think that's smart. What you're doing is really smart. So yeah, it's really been a huge blessing for me. And you know, every every personality is different, right? There's some people that just are are gutsy in a way that can and decisive and confident that they can say, "Yep, that's exactly where that needs to go." Yeah, and not that can not not think about it again. But but for me, I'm much more methodical. Like I want to be bold once I've made a choice. But for me, I need to really be able to compare and contrast and try ideas yeah. before I can commit to it. Um, so anyway, that was that was a big part of my process, learning that at the studio. Then BYU um, contacted me and wanted me to come teach for them um, in film, teach concept design and and kind of basic painting and drawing skills. They contacted you right so, about the time you got laid off because it closed? Um, no, actually, it closed after I left. So I left when oh. the studio was still, you know, doing well and strong. Oh, good, good. Okay. That's good timing. So. So then I went, I went to BYU and taught there for six years, continuing to work for freelance for Blue Sky. We were working on the film Ferdinand at that time. So I, my first film was Rio, and then which was fun because I lived in Brazil as a missionary, right? So mm -hmm. it was really fun to visually explore that country um, artistically that I love so much. And then we did Rio 2, Ice Age 4 was one of the ones I worked on, and then Peanuts and Epic, the movie Leafman, Epic came out the same weekend as Captain America and everybody went to see Captain America instead of our movie, but it was really, it was really good. <laughs> I haven't seen Epic. Sorry. I've seen oh, Rio fine. though. <laughs> you probably saw Captain America. Though. I did, <laughs> but I saw all the other ones you named. So <laughs> yeah, it's on Disney plus now. Okay. Can see it. Okay. So, so when I was at BYU was teaching a lot and loved my time there. And it was really the start of, my fine art career, even though I had been doing some gallery painting, actually, this is important that I back up and say this. At Blue Sky, we finally had kids. Um, just this little window opened up and we had three close together. And, um, and so I'd been doing like down in the basement, I still had my easel set up because I really was a fine artist who had kind of gone to work at the movies. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a digital painter that occasionally dabbled in, in paint, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so I, it was still really important to me to keep painting. And so I was, I was painting oil paintings at night, 
spending months on a on a medium sized painting, um, just kind of working them up, and they were kind of lame paintings in it. But they were, it was all from photo reference I'd taken in the West, and because the East just seemed like it was one. It's like going to a park or trying to paint a golf course. It was just too perfect and green, green on green on green. Yeah, yeah. And so I I mean it was lovely for in so many ways, but. So it wasn't um, until we had kids that I realized, like, I can't come home at night and paint for hours and on Saturday take hours to paint and expect my wife, Liz, to keep taking care of the kids, right? She was done with her graduate degree at that point and was doing some dance stuff down in Manhattan, but I realized I've got to change something. And so I said, okay, I can't do big paintings at home at night in the same way, so I'm going to do more plain air painting. And so then every week at, at 12 o'clock on Wednesdays, I would go out and paint and take a two hour lunch and then make up the time later at work that I'd missed. But I just every week had an appointment at 12 o'clock on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And um, I tried to go out with other painters from the studio, get like get people together and go paint outside. But it was always hit and miss. And, you know, when you're trying to do art by committee, it was like, okay, Thursday, yeah, let's do Thursday. And then Thursday was raining. Okay, that's not good. And then Friday comes, like, we're busy. We have deadlines. We can't do it. Let's do it next week. So it was always getting pushed off. And I realized, okay, I, I just have to choose. This has to be my choice. So Wednesday at 12, if somebody wants to come with me, that's great. Otherwise, I'm just going. And it turns out statistically, uh, it's raining and snowing more than not on Wednesdays at 12 o'clock in New York. So <laughs> I learned how to deal with that. But uh, but that was just a beautiful um, point in my week, every week. And, and I realized that it was harder and harder for me sticking in the studio, like driving in in the morning when it's dark in a darker studio, because I have to put the blinds down so you can see the monitors well, and then driving home as the sun's going down and never feeling like I was in nature. And, and it was a disconnect from nature in a way that felt really hard mm -hmm. in some ways. So Wednesdays became a really liberating time for me. And I got a ton better because I was just doing more repetition and being exposed to, um, to lighting scenarios in a way that I wasn't when I was just doing big paintings every couple months in my basement. Mm -hmm. It was this, it was a really informative time for me that I needed that sometimes constraints actually are real blessings, right? Like without the constraints of children, I probably wouldn't have been forced to look at other solutions for my time management. And I would have just kept doing the same thing. But yet it was the lack of time that I had now that forced me to create better habits with the time that I did have. Oh, that's great. And yeah. So did you leave the city to paint? Or did you, are you doing urban scenes? We were actually right up north of the city. So Manhattan, the studio wasn't in Manhattan. Oh. It was right about 10 miles north of Manhattan up in Westchester County. Oh, okay. So we were surrounded by a lot of, of green space and that was really beautiful. Right. So you had to watch out for the poison ivy, but yeah. other than that. You know, I grew up, I grew up only about half an hour north of that. Really? Yeah. Yep. In Newburgh, New York on the Hudson. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We were in, in Greenwich in White Plains area. Okay. Yep. That's awesome. Small so, world. So you know very well how what that area is like oh, in yeah. different parts. It's gorgeous in person, but it's brutal to paint. I mean, I think that's why I mean I've never painted it, but I'm just just based on my experience painting anything, I can't imagine trying to make something interesting out of green on green on green. It'd be really tough. Right. But and that's where the Hudson River School. Hudson 
Yes, you were going to yeah. say the same thing. Go finish your finish your point. No, it just and you can add to this too. I it seems to me as I've seen the Hudson River School, there's a reason why they were painting at sunset all the time. Yeah. The, the warmth would and they were looking way down river valleys and things. Any chance to get to get um, atmosphere and distance, and any chance to overwhelm the green with other to other scenarios like hot sunset or inside of they go inside of a canopy of the forest so that they could really have little pinpricks of light coming through so they could control where they were putting everything yeah um, well what i was going to say is a lot of them really dulled down the green and made them much more gray and almost almost to the brown yeah i noticed yeah so sure. so what was when did you um so then you start teaching at byu and that's where we met yep Yep. So how did and you make that break from BYU to painting full-time? Where I'm at now. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, early on at BYU, you came as a guest artist and were hugely influential to me. One of the things that made a big difference was that I remembered from beyond a couple of things that you said. Number one, you, you talked about and showed the transition that you had made from being a very direct painter to an indirect painter. And that you made a real choice to change the way that you painted based on the effects that you wanted to have and the stories, the types of stories that you wanted to tell mm -hmm. and the way you wanted to tell those stories. And that was a huge inspiration to me of like, oh, like I get to choose what, what I'm, how I'm doing things, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not just, it wasn't just one way that you could paint, you could choose that. And then also another thing that made a big difference, you talked about like a year supply of of uh, like savings that you had and that you and your wife and maybe even more than that, that you had done as a means of helping to allow that transition to happen as well as just to live as an artist. You talked a lot about just the structure of living as an artist and how to make that work. And that made a real impact on me. Oh, I, I appreciate like, that. Oh, like really saving and having like being an artist doesn't mean that you just <laughs> jump off the cliff without any plan and hope that there's, a bungee cord somewhere down the road. It's like, no, you, you, you can do it. You just have to plan and be, be good at planning. So, um, I liked plan. And so that made a lot of sense to me. And then, um, I also really liked how you were uh, exploring different things, different styles, like graphically and some things you were, you were kind of blending graphic with, um, kind of traditional and, and yeah. observational in a yeah. way that made a lot of sense to me. I think my mind works really graphically. I think, it, if I were to go back, I could have seen a fork in the road in which I became a graphic designer probably mm -hmm. and enjoyed that. I look back at my early sketchbooks and they're very graphic, like graphic shapes. It took me time to learn how to render form over the top of like what just naturally made sense as, as graphic shapes. Yeah. And so for some artists, they they love rendering form and then it takes some time for them to real really learn how to superimpose graphic shapes on their work. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was kind of the other way around. Graphic shapes meant a lot of, made a lot of sense hmm. um, initially. So then I was at BYU, I was teaching there for a lot of years, and I really, really loved it. I loved teaching so many different um, classes, both concept design as well as traditional painting, and really being forced to um, diagram out concepts and teach them in a way helped me to learn them much deeper than I ever could have otherwise. And so 
Um, I was started during that time. And when I first got there to Utah, I approached some big galleries in Jackson Hole and other places about work and having work there and was getting just shut down by a lot of them. Really? Um, That's surprising because I remember yeah. seeing your work. Well, maybe this was earlier than I saw your work, but I remember coming into your office and being really impressed with what you were doing back then. Oh, thank you. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of galleries, I, they didn't know who I was. Right? Well, and it's sometimes just, just not a right fit, though, too. Yeah. I mean, you exactly. could be an amazing so, painter, and if you go to the wrong gallery, it's you're just not a good fit. Totally. So I'm not try, I'm not disparaging them. Like it was just, they didn't know who I was. I was just this little Yahoo, and and I was doing a lot of small smaller paintings. I wasn't doing a lot of big yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's what I remember. And yeah. so then, actually, one of the other faculty there, he, um, Jason Lanigan, he's now the sculpture director out at UVU, but he invited me to be in a show about Barnes specifically and said, I want you to do a big piece, like do something big and like a showstopper piece. And I hadn't done a big agricultural painting before. And so it was, uh, so I did a big red barn and it was like the lights finally turned on. It was like clearing off the, the windshield. It was like, oh, this is what I was meant to do. Like it felt so right. And so suddenly I started doing a lot of big agricultural pieces. And it was that next step of kind of the doors being open to what I was really supposed to be doing. Isn't that funny? So, so many artists, myself included, we, we stress about finding yourself, particularly when you're in college. Maybe you went through this, maybe you didn't, but I remember my teachers always saying, you gotta find yourself, you gotta find a voice, you gotta figure out who you are. And my feeling at the time was, I can't figure out who I am. I don't even know how to paint. Like, I just need to get the craft down before I figure out my style, so to speak. And, and then, but more times than not, it seems like people just sort of stumble into who they are because something comes along, like this opportunity where someone says, can you paint a barn? And then you realize that's what I want to do. And yeah. you didn't have to look for it or be contrived for 15 years. You just had to just keep painting until the stars aligned. Absolutely. And I was, you know, I was going in plain air painting a lot of farms and things. And I like the story of agriculture was there kind of fomenting, fermenting inside of me. Right. Um, and so it was it was there, but it really opened the doors of how to how to say it in a big way. That's great. And I re and it also made me realize like, oh, like this really is just like concept design for film. Like it just is on a big scale that. And so then after after six years, like or in fact, early on, um, Liz got tired of me asking like, OK, um, should I really be here? I really want to be painting more. And it's frustrating to be in all these meetings when I want to be painting more. And and I was I was praying a lot about it, wanting divine direction of like where I should go. Was felt like I received some really clear answers of like um, you're going to be fine. Stop asking this question. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> stop complaining and just work with what I've given you right now. And and then after six years, I realized okay, like it's time to move forward and to be able to to paint full time. And, and I was where, and I was ready for that, not in spite of teaching for those six years, but because of it, like it was such a blessing and getting to mentor the students there and talk about things in ways that were really illuminating for me. And, and anyway, it was just so beautiful. And I'm grateful for every second of that time. And even organizationally, it taught me things about 
how to navigate big systems and and financially working things out in beautiful ways. And it what it did too was it gave me six years of being able to create paintings without having to sell them, even big paintings. So those same galleries, once I was doing bigger pieces and had a more consistency, a consistent style, then they were starting to email me and saying, hey, we'd love to carry your work and things like that. And mm. so, uh, so I'm curious. Still, so I'm curious. Was one of your things to be prepared? Did you did you manage to get that one year in the bank? Um, I did. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I tell all my students that because it doesn't it feel free? Because now you can just like you don't have to be afraid that every painting yes. isn't going to sell, and you can just Absolutely. you can just That's be completely authentic. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. if you if you have to sell every painting, what happens is you look to what sold before. And you say, oh, well, what sold last time? So I need to do more of that. And then you start to become a bad parody of yourself. Right. And you're creatively, you just tank. Because the only way to, to really create new things is to, to do what you haven't done before. And right. there's going to be an element of risk with that. So you have to be able to, to ask questions that you don't have the answers to. That's the only way to stay alive. I mean, you, I love listening to interviews by big like musicians that I love like U2 and Coldplay and some of these other bands, you listen to their story. And the only way, the reason why they have stayed relevant for so long is because they've reinvented themselves every album. Hmm. And they've completely thrown out what they did before and said, well, we're going to try something new. And sometimes it works and sometimes it's not their best, but they they aren't afraid to try it and then to move on to something else and and to not just be repetitive of the past. So, so yeah, I totally agree. That's just the only way to make it work and to stay relevant. It's the paradox of creation, right? The more you do that, the more you actually have more success. Yeah. Um, where if you were just to do the same painting over and over again, then it wouldn't be interesting. And, and frankly, it's one of the reasons why I don't just do every painting as a huge barn anymore. Cause, cause that's not the story I want to tell. I want to tell a story about agriculture as in general and people's interactions with the land and kind of deeper philosophical ideas rather than just, I can do a big barn from the front in profile and it starts to feel a little bit like a drive-through menu at Wendy's. It's like, okay, I'll take one of the double pitch barn with a sunset and a smattering of hay bales. Right. Right. It's like, great. I know how to do that painting. And, and there's, there starts to become like three kind of motifs that you can, go back to and and it just feels repetitive and boring and why would you want to do that yeah i mean i'll still do that sometimes and i enjoy enjoy that there's joy in it but but there's a reason why i started to paint like interiors and things in the field and things around the farm and just like ideas of about man's interaction with nature mm -hmm. that are different so mm -hmm. well let's take this uh time now to go look at some of your art actually awesome now that you've mentioned what it is you're doing now and i gotta tell you it is this just looking at this i'm let's let's open this up i'm sure this one's in there let's let's start with that to the point you just made you're doing these incredible barns and you did a few of them how many would you say you did i don't know at least 10 right yeah um this is risky but it's in your sold area and it's because yeah. it's a wheel it's a rubber tire that's the focus but it's so gorgeous but i imagine if you were 
if, if you were really concerned about having to sell the next painting, you might not have taken this risk. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. And I painted this without even having a gallery where it was going to. Yeah. I just really loved it and thought it was a beautiful, beautiful scene. You pulled it off because it's incredible. It's incredible. But well, if someone you. said, what are you working on right now? Oh, I'm painting a tractor wheel. <laughs> it's like they might be like well uh do you need a job <laughs> but somehow you've made it work um i've, I've well, got a question you. about this one of the things and this is what i really want to talk to you about well one of the things that i just find amazing about your work is your color harmony and i i was thinking while you were talking earlier that it seems like a lot of artists are influenced by film. And as you were talking about film, I kept thinking that. And, you know, you, you think about film, how they, they do these incredible things, like the, the, the standard scene of someone being interrogated in a, in a police station and everything is kind of gray-blue, right? It's just moody and mm -hmm. gray. Um, and then there's all these different variations of that kind of thing. But then when you, as you were talking, it made me realize that it's like, no, films are influenced by painters. And then painters are then once again influenced by films, which really means that painters are influenced by painters. That never occurred to me before. In fact, I just mm -hmm. didn't know. So that, that films were influenced by painters. So, but tell me a little bit about that. How, when nature just isn't um, this harmonious all the time, how do you manage mm -hmm all the chaos and color and nature and come up with these beautiful, harmonious compositions. Hmm. Maybe that's a whole curriculum. Well, um, <laughs> is, that, is that too hard to answer? Yeah. I mean, nature needs to be art directed all the time, right? Yeah. Um, and so much of it is like, are you painting an idea or are you painting a thing? And, and my hope is to paint ideas, not things. And so once you've, once you're painting an idea, then you, and you've decided what that idea is, then you can eliminate everything that's not telling that idea, right? That's not not creating the the feel that you want. And it doesn't mean that you always have to have an exact script of saying, well, this is the story that I'm telling and et cetera, et cetera. These are the players and this is how it goes through time. Sometimes it may be just a, a an emotion of, you know, I want, you know, dustiness and nostalgia where I want quietness. Specifically mm. on this piece, I was hearkening back to a lot of experiences I had as a young boy standing in barns that were, when no one was there, right? And where there was like dust settling over everything. And these, especially as a young kid, you're around these really big objects that are real. like, there's nothing safe about any of these objects. They're really powerful and they're machines and they're metal and they're heavy and you don't know what most of them half of them are used for and there's there's generational history there with them you know some of them are feel really old but you don't understand enough to understand all the heritage involved in it yet and so it's just a big mystery to you and it feels exciting and kind of scary but very quiet at the same time right mm -hmm. when you're standing places you're, you're just hearing that silence, kind of like when you walk out into a snowstorm and you can hear the silence, right? Yeah. Of, of the weight of all that snow coming down. And it feels that way in these spaces as a, as a little boy. 
And so I wanted to, to give that feel, convey that feeling of mystery and of weight and of, um, of power and so, and quietness. And so that was kind of my goal with this. And what, and so part of that is with any theme, you have to have juxtaposition. Like one theme alone is usually boring. Like it's, it's contrasts that give interest the same way that you've probably had clients that wanted you to paint something that felt really light and like spiritually light, right? From a character. And so then it's like, well, we need more light. So just add more light to it. But if you add more light and light and light and light, then all of a sudden you just have like a white piece of paper. Like you, right. it's the contrast that allows the light to be red. And the same here where I want it to feel really quiet, but also really dynamic at the same time, right? You have the, um, the pokiness of everything, these shapes and, and the dramatic singularity of light. And then, so I say, okay, I want those dramatic things, but I'm going to create simplicity to balance that out and to tell the other side of the story of quietness. So I'm going to rein in all of the color and we're going to pull it all closer to the middle because that's often what happens on the farm too, is everything gets covered with dust over time. And it, it was some other color originally, but now it all just kind of takes this general patina. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to ask you how you did it and you just explained it. Um, I mean, there, I'm sure it's much more complex than you could possibly put into a paragraph, but I'm, but I'm... back to film though, really quick. So mm -hmm. one of the big, th one of the things that they were always were pushing in film was just visual distribution of interest, right? With big, medium, small shapes. In fact, on the Ferdinand film, they said, okay, we've done big, medium, small on Rio. But now we're going to do big, small, tiny, like we want to push that proportion even more. And so they were always thinking about groupings of visual information to be able to tell the story more. So for, for my work, and especially in this piece, the, I'm always thinking about like big, medium, small shapes. And so for this piece specifically, if you can hover over by the box, the box and that kind of stuff heading over yeah that box and all the stuff behind it that's on the ground and like none of that was there and all that stuff in shadow was there but none of the stuff in the light was there oh it was this. just yeah that stuff on the ground and the in the box and the little tractor top um that's flipped upside down with the little pokey things right by mm -hmm. like that was all stuff that i just made up because it needed a third layer of information in what? storytelling really and so that stuff that on, um, on a small st study is fine. The storytelling's great at that level, but on a four foot painting, like it just needs more storytelling. And so it, I needed to be able to tell the story a little bit more. And I liked that just visually it helped. And then also just it further pushed that story of like, he's fixing something. I think this, the title of this piece, um, was next week maybe or this week maybe next mm -hmm. and it's because in the in the winter time when you were fixing your tractors and everything in the middle of of not working like nothing follows the schedule and it would like yeah maybe i'll fix it this week maybe it's next week when it gets fixed like it just is a little slower mm -hmm. and so there's not a and that kind of pulling to the idea of timelessness right as a young boy stepping into these places, in these spaces, you don't know um, what, you know, you could pause time and it could be 50 years ago and you don't know. And so 
time gets spread out. And, and so that's kind of what I wanted to suggest here a little more through these elements to the side of the tractor where there's work going on, things are happening, but not at a, in a, in a quick pace, mm -hmm. right? So time's happening, action's happening, inter humans are interacting with this, but it's a slower, it's a slower pace. You know what I find really interesting about this painting? I don't know if you did it on purpose. I would assume you did, even if you don't, didn't realize it, but is you ever, you ever walk up to a place and you see like this, you see a little bit of light and you're like, what is in there? And then you just want to go into that place and explore what's in the shadows of the place. Um, Absolutely. That's what I'm doing with your painting. Like clearly this is what brings you into the painting. But then I keep finding myself wanting to just search back here. Like what's going on? What's in there? What's on the shelves? And then I'll bounce Absolutely. back to here and look at all the action, the drama, and then go like, but yeah, but what's back in there? I mean, you've created Absolutely. really dynamic experience. And it's not even about dynamic composition. It's a relatively calm composition, but the experience of looking at it feels dynamic. Totally. Yeah. And that was definitely one of the goals in it. And because you're right, it's all the stuff that's kind of buried underneath other things that's the mm -hmm. most interesting. And as a little kid, I just would spend hours like just rifling through all these places in, in barns to find an old treasure of something that I had no idea what it was, but it, I'm sure I was sure it was some important artifact from the past. And so one of the, I actually did that a little too much. So consciously I was trying to do that. And then the background ended up being far too light. Mm. And so the sense of light and drama wasn't there. And so I had to go and glaze a dark over all of the background to simplify it and push it way back. Oh, so you do glaze. You can't really tell. I mean, obviously these are reduced way down. But yeah, there's quite a bit of glazing on this. And specifically with that piece, I did a lot of cold wax medium buildup in the beginning. Oh, and then I'm let that dry. Mm -hmm. and then, so like all of the stuff in the by the tire, the, all the mechanisms of the tractor mm -hmm. and all the ground plane, those were all cold wax medium. And then I let that dry and then I painted other texture over the top of that. Okay. Yeah, it almost looks like kind of uh, stucco texture you got going. It's really cool. For sure. The other thing is, um, you know, and maybe I should save this for some other paintings, but let's let's pull up another painting here. But one of the things that, is incredible about your work is you really have a gift for managing edges. I mean, a lot of, this is a pretty sharp edged one for you, actually. Let me pull, I want to pull this back because I love that painting, but maybe this one here. Okay. So your edges are so energetic and a lot, you don't really pull a whole lot into focus. And then every now and then you're just like, man really sharp um and it comes it, it really makes for an interesting painting and so how do you balance that i mean let's say this up here right this is in the foreground i might have made the mistake or another artist might have made the mistake of saying oh well i need to put all my hard edges here but you put it here and yet it still reads how do you balance that it's just just magic jeff <laughs> am um, i asking questions that can't it, be answered honestly some of it's conscious and some of it isn't really um, the way some of it is um the digital process like my that i come to things pretty figured out like even small things like on the bottom where the um 
where the blue tarp is going down and then gets blocked by some cinder blocks in the yeah. foreground on the yeah. bottom. Like I made those cinder blocks up. Like the tarp ended further up. Okay. Um, but it felt compositionally it needed it. And so I, I added those to it. So I figured things out digitally to the point where now once I'm painting the thing, I can be a little more aggressive with how I'm applying the paint because I know that compositionally it's going to work generally. Oh, okay. And then also one of the, for me, um, applying paint is a means to an end. My goal is to, really it's like a color key. My goal is to solve the problem visually, the sense of light and the focal point and the, the story that I want to tell. And then everything else gets subdued in service of that goal. And so my paint application really is about saying, I want to as quickly as I can solve this problem because I know it works here on my study. So I want to solve it here on the canvas. And so then it gets sometimes a little aggressive or even how I'm pulling edges. It's because no, that's taking my focus away from where I want you to be looking. So I'm going to soften oh, that up. <laughs> that makes sense because it's like all of your really crisp edges or many of them at least are really in this band of light that cuts through the painting. Yeah. Which is, totally. yeah. Cool. Okay. So if you go to some of the other work, you can probably see other better examples. I mean, that was a pretty, um, exacting. Is there uh, one that you think would be a good example here of what see, we're talking about? Up. Okay. Um, let's actually go to, uh, yeah, let's go to the, um, canoe piece up the top. Okay. Oh, I love this one. Yeah. I remember when you posted this on Instagram, I was floored. Thank you. So, yeah, I'm really, because I'm painting generally wet into wet, even as I'm doing bigger pieces, I'm trying to plan to kind of move around the painting in a way and create it block by block in a way that it still feels wet into wet. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, and we I'm can see that on the watermelons back there. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so generally I'm trying to paint relatively quickly. Um, and because I do have a pretty good guide of where I'm going at this point. So I'm trying to pull, pull contrast back and lessen contrast and soften edges where I don't want you to look and then push mm. contrast, push color and push edges, um, sharper where I do want you to look. Okay. And then sometimes it's just fun. <laughs> right. It's just fun. You know, that's the beauty of oil paint in a way that digital can't do is just to, to revel in, in texture and things. But even now I found that like the digital brushes in Photoshop are meant to mimic oil paint. And so, but then I start sometimes mimicking did my, did what my digital brushes can do. Oh yeah. I've heard paint. people say that. Yeah. Like back and forth. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But the, fortunately for us painters out there, there's nothing like real texture that captures that actually reflects light depending on how textured it is or what direction the brush strokes go absolutely that digital will never replace yeah absolutely yeah. and so one of the things i've done in the last few years because it's been really important for me to keep tr keep growing and keep experimenting and not stay stagnant mm -hmm. uh, and and that's one of the reasons why i never um I never worry about people like looking like me 
Does mm -hmm. I feel, does that make sense? Like, because you're always moving, you're always one me. step ahead. Like, that doesn't bother me at all. Because yeah. I feel like, great, if that's what you need to do to try on your, your style for a while, that's fine. But I think as artists, like, really, who you are as an artist is because of the stories you tell. And, the, and nobody else has that story to tell. Like, that's uniquely mm -hmm. yours. Mm -hmm. Why would you ever worry about somebody mimicking you? The second that you start telling the same story and just worry about, then you worry about people copying you because you've just done a, a thing. But I don't want to just paint a thing. So a thing, a thing, something I've done over the past few years to try and push myself to grow is just trying to tell the stories in new ways. And and so I have a few, sometimes a single piece. Um, sometimes, um, so sometimes it'll be a single piece where my only goal is to ask a question, like a what if. Mm -hmm. What would happen if I did this and not have the answer to it? And then just try it and see what happens. And so a couple of years ago, I had a painting. It was a, it's, I actually don't have it online anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, it was just a 40 inch square. And my whole goal was to ask questions. And I didn't get to say, the only rule was I, didn't, I couldn't say no to anything. Like if it came to my head and I was thinking about doing it, I had to try it. Really? And so, yeah. So I just wanted to see what would happen if I stopped saying no to things that I typically would That's say no a to. scary thing. I mean, you could come up with some really weird, kinky stuff, and then you just got to do it. <laughs> and how great. Okay. So it's like, what would happen if You're I like did smearing that? paint all over your naked body and diving into the canvas? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Let's see what happens. Oh, man. And, so it was super fun to say, oh, well, what would happen if I completely scraped this part off and started again? Mm -hmm. What would happen if I took a paint roller and rolled up this? Or what would happen, you know, this, 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 this. And it was hugely, it got me to some new places that I never would have been otherwise. Hmm. So I love, even in almost every piece I do, I try and try something new that I haven't done before. Really? And just say, what would happen, you know, I tried this last time. What would happen if I applied it in a new way here? Or how close can I pull values in a way that I can still maintain a shape, right? Let's just see what happens if I do that. Yeah, like yeah. Zoe, Zoe's really good at doing this. Oh yeah, she is, yeah. I don't know if you know, but I also interviewed her. She's, yeah, she's brilliant. Right, um, yeah, she is. She's far more daring with it than I am. She's so pretty I daring. I don't know about that, but she's pretty uh, incredible. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So tell me about this one or this, these six, I actually saw, I think it was these, I saw these in person at Anthony's, uh -huh. right? Doesn't he yes. have them? Yeah. Um, they're yeah. incredible. But tell me about this series and how, how it came about. Thank you. Um, so <laughs> I remember I, I had been um, just over the few years, I think maybe as a color key artist, I loved the idea of the same subject in different times of day, right? Because we would often paint that at, yeah. at Blue Sky Studios, that you would have to do three different versions of the same thing in different kind of lighting scenarios to be able to, to attack different ideas. And then the director would choose the one that they wanted. And, and so that idea of multiple, of changes, um, of just how the time of day can really change the feeling of a, of a place and and change things emotionally was really in in my head and then i was at the getty museum in la and looking at um like they don't have a huge representational collection but they have some real gems mm -hmm. and one of them was a, one of monet's cathedral paintings they had a few of them right next to each other 
and I realized, oh, like that's exactly what I've been thinking about is the idea of same subject, different time of day. Like I wasn't the first one to make that up. Like he was figuring that out years ago. And Monet loved to do that. He would go back to the same subject over and over. And so I thought, well, what if I did that with an agricultural subject? What would that look like? And and then I was up in Sheridan, Wyoming. Um, actually, my wife Liz was teaching an, an art as it was a guest um, dancer, guest choreographer for Sheridan College. And so we went and spent a week at a, a ranch up there. And um, then I'll, that's when I first connected with Tim Lawson, actually, because he was up there. So we visited and spent some time in his studio. And, and parenthetically, if you ever go to Sheridan, Wyoming, you come to understand Tim Lawson in a full new way. It's like, why oh, is yeah, that? This is, it just, it, he, he's nailed it. Like, it, oh. it looks like Tim Lawson. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he also lives turn, in Maine, though, and he's got a lot of Maine stuff. Yeah, there. for sure. But everywhere I would turn, I'm like, oh. Like that's a Tim painting and that's yeah, a Tim painting. Yeah. And that's how the he describes it. Thing. He's like, Oh, I'm He's just driving to work and there's a painting and there's a painting. And that's how he describes yeah. his source of inspiration. It it's very much that way. And he's so good at ob at observing really close observation that he he really does describe it well. So you're up mm -hmm. there and it, it's it's again, we as artists are a product of our environment, right? Um we paint what we see around us. And so it's no surprise that he's um, seeing those kinds of scenes because they're all around them in beautiful ways. So this was at, their, at the ranch we were staying at. The farmer had, at the end of last of the past season, he had dumped some hay bales just off of the loader that were like the excess bales before they were done for the night. And then he just left them there and didn't change them at all. Hmm. So these, these bales had fallen in this position and it was like the perfect composition. It is and really we were cool. there for a week. It was in October and there was this freakish snowstorm that came through and then kind of melted over a few days. And so I got to re over a week, just observe these hay bales in different times of day, different atmosphere. Oh, conditions. so you observed this. I imagined you, I imagined you made a lot of these up. Well, both. Okay. So, so I observed it. I didn't do a lot of paintings on location. It was pretty bitter cold. Yeah. I mean, if I were, if I were hardcore Russian, I would have done that. I yeah, I know. But seriously. Partly, Partly, I was there with my kids. I was kind of the babysitter while Liz was doing her thing, right? So I was just, I was around with the kids. I just didn't have a lot of time to paint, but I could go back and forth and photograph a lot. So I came home with dozens and dozens of photographs just of these haystacks at different times of day. And then I put them through my concept design filter. So then I started to push and pull things. And like, I didn't have an, a, a nocturne, obviously, for my photographs. So I just made you know, push those around like the top left one that didn't have the shadow there, but I thought it, I liked it with that shadow mm -hmm. better. So it's cool. That in there. So I, just, I eliminated all of the excess information around. I didn't show any of the fence lines. I didn't show any of the mountains in the background. I just wanted to really simplify it down as to as graphic a statement as I could and try and tell a different story in each of these. So I had, again, another, you know, dozens and dozens of other ideas that didn't make the cut. I just came down to this series and said, okay, I want to do six pieces. I want them to exist as an entirety. And I want to tell a story in a way that the cult, the entirety of the group tells a story in a way that just a single piece doesn't. Hmm. And in a way that's what film is, right? Film is these still images that are extruded in time and then tell a story in a way that just a single image can't. And, um, 
Zoe Frank's doing a lot of this as well with different panels that she's putting together to tell a bigger story, each panel being a different time of day as well. So I think there's this idea of how film and technology have changed the way that we're telling stories because we think chronologically and in a way that other past generations didn't. And so it's an interesting way to me to, to be able to tell a story in a, in a contemporary way, but that is with a traditional subject, if that makes sense. Yep. So this yeah. was dust. The title of it is Dust of Snow. So my concept was this idea of beauty amidst um, imperfection or against challenge, this idea that the I wanted man and a divine influence to coexist here, this idea that we are imperfect and sometimes we feel like we've gotten dropped or we are our situation in life that we've gotten dropped in this heap and we feel really ugly and imperfect compared to the stacks around us. But God being this divine sense of light and color that he that that he can make beauty out of what feels imperfect. And oh, that's chaotic. cool. I like that. Right? Yeah. So very clearly diagrammed out on paper, um, like a script said, okay, like these are the symbol, the hay bales are the, the human mortal symbols. The light is the divine symbol. So how can I interplay these two in a way that then creates something beautiful? Wow. So a few specific questions. One is, is this photographed so the horizon lines are crooked or did you paint them slanted? Um, no, I painted them. Cause slanted. I like them slanted, but every now you never know. Cause they're just a little bit slanted. So it could have been that they were photographed that way. I like that. Right. That's a no, really yeah, interesting decision. Well, they were on a hill actually. I didn't make that part up. Oh, you I didn't? Mean, I, oh, okay. No. Okay. So I did. Um, I did uh, kind of adjust the pitch of it based on what, it, what I wanted it to be, but, but generally it was on a hill. So that was there already. And then the other thing is that I've, I've always wondered about with your work is you're always changing the light source and the light in the environment. Um, and yet somehow your shadows always seem to work. And can you tell me a little bit about that? I'm, I mean, like take this one right here. It almost feels like it's lit from a hard light but then it's then it, but it must be moonlight it just works i mean it's i guess i'm i guess i'm not sure exactly what i'm asking but how uh, how do you manage shadows that are cast i mean i'm assuming you're using photos from one time of day sometimes and making another time of day and then when you change the lighting how do you manage the the character of the shadows on the object do you completely reinvent them it totally depends, um, but it's kind of the animation mantra of if it feels right, it is right. Okay. That's animators do that all the time to where if, if, if you can, you can change whatever you want to change. You can change color. You can change shadow. You can do whatever you want. And as long as it feels believable and feels right, then it can be right. Okay. Um, and you don't have to explain everything. Um, I like away, that, right? Like you, you can do crazy color stuff in a film and you can make like shift everything to where the characters are all wonky and we're in, in a really imaginative place. But if you are consistent enough to where you've made it feel cohesive and people, you believe it when you watch it, then that's all you have to explain. Right. So, See, that may be the most just, important thing I learned from you today. I mean, cause I am a very analytical person. Um, 
And when I'm doing a painting, I'm doing perspective drawings and thinking, okay, mathematically, how does this shadow cast? And then I look at your paintings and they look right. And I'm like, he, I know he's not doing the math here. It just looks amazing. <laughs> so, right. so I'm overthinking it, aren't I? I mean, it's, it, sometimes. Yeah, that's sometimes. good. Sometimes in the sense of like, all of those things of, of the proportions and the mathematic and the perspective, those are only tools to serve you as the, the visual storytelling master. So right. the story is the most important thing. And if the story is coming through, then the other parts can work out as they will. That's so great. Having said that, like I'm definitely doing a thinking about like light direction and cat, how well, that's cast. That's obvious. Yeah. Going. And so I'm looking, and if I'm going to reinvent something, I'm going to look at my reference and try and understand it structurally. Say, okay, let me break it down on my mind and say, okay, it's coming from here and this is where the light is. And that's why that shadow's there. And then once I understand it structurally, I can take those pieces and rotate them or eliminate them as, at my leisure and to serve the story. And then I can kind of make sense of it because I have the pieces deconstructed, if that makes sense. It does. It does. So you're coming so, at it with, you're analyzing it somewhat intellectually and scientifically in the beginning, but then uh, you're like, okay, but ultimately it just has to look good. It's right. like, even if I know this is, might be wrong, may or may not be right, as long as it reads, it's okay. Right. Yeah. And it was one of the fun things about this, because really, I mean, these are squares. I mean, rectangles, like they're just blocks. Yeah, these so are relatively like, simple, but you've done some pretty hard stuff. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, like it really is just mentally, it's easier to, a lot easier to change light and color hmm. when you're just dealing with cubes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's look at one that you probably changed that you're not dealing with cubes. Cause I know you change color all the time or change, change lighting all the time. Maybe you could, maybe you could pick one out. Okay. So go up to the, um, go further up to the landscape piece right under right here um, to the right there you go yeah yeah okay um yeah so i made up a lot of a lot of this from you know different types of reference and um yeah there's a lot of making it but there again to me in my mind it's like whether it's a rock or a tree or a mountain or a bush it's all just a basic structure and so once i can understand like how it fits in a box and what this light side shadow side is then you can turn it around and put put it in a different spot and it's fine Huh. Okay. But you have, when you're, when you're down here, okay. And you've got this shadow that's cast from something that it doesn't matter what it is. It's just off of outside the picture frame. You still are following some light logic, but because, oh, but because there's shadow cast over it, that light logic is just ambient light from the sky. Right. Right. So it's and almost shadow, coming from a different all, direction. Yeah. So that shadow is all being cast from that rock. So you can see the light side, shadow side and where it's casting. It's just the sun's at a really low angle that's right. coming across that rock on the left. But um, but yeah, I definitely, there was a ton of compositional change within this. Um, yeah, so it's it looks, actually a, it looks plain air. It looks, made up. It looks plain oh, air. Good. It looks like, yeah, it looks like you just were standing right there looking at nature. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, but here I really wanted this, wanted it to feel like you could step into the painting, right? I think with landscape painting, especially, it's really important that somebody that's looking at it feel like they could physically enter this space and that you give them a little kind of a trail to follow visually so that they can imagine themselves walking through. They may not even realize they're doing it, 
but visually they're doing it to feel like they're a part of things. Yeah, one thing I learned from you when we went painting together, because as you mentioned, I'd never really done plein air painting. Um, but you had said that when something is in, sh or no, you had talked about the different planes and the planes that are facing the sky or the, like this plane, for example, here, which is technically on the light side, but it's halftone would be cooler than the lights, which are being hit directly by the sun. Am True. I getting that right? Yeah. And I remember that oh, was, yeah. that was, uh, yeah, that, that was a really important piece of information that it was just like, ding, ding. Like I never would have thought of that if you hadn't told me because it's very subtle when you're looking at it in nature. I remember looking after you told me that looking at what we were painting and, and I could only see it after you mentioned it because it's so subtle. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, I appreciate that piece of advice. It was really, really nice nugget of information. Oh, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. And, and I'm still figuring so much of that out, but really like the simplest way to say it, I guess, is anytime there's a plane change, there's also a value in a color change and a temperature change. Yeah. Right? Because it's either getting closer to the primary light source and further and less influenced by the secondary light source, or it's going the other way is getting less influenced by the primary light source and more influenced by the secondary light source. So any, there's always two, two light sources in play, except when you're in space. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. really, really great. And in this case, in the, in, and also in the case of our plane air trip, the secondary light source was the blue sky, primary light source, exactly. direct sunlight. Exactly. Um, and that's typically the case when you're outside. Um, and sometimes if it's overcast, then really you just have, you know, your primary light source, which is cool light. And then everything fades to warmer light as it fades away from that. Hmm. So it's a much simpler, like overcast is much simpler to paint than direct light is. Hmm. And, which is also why um, a lot of animators or in animation, they'll paint or other environment artists I know, if they're making something up, they'll often paint it in overcast light and neutral light first, and then they'll make up the direct light on top of that. Oh, really? Where they'll, they, um, Dai Susumi, that was um, responsible for most of what you know of Pixar's color in like Toy Story 3 and things like that, all those great paintings. Um, he calls them his white light paintings. So, like he'll just have that single light source and treat it as a white neutral light. And then everything will fade away from that in beautiful ways. But once you've created something in neutral uh, overcast light, then you can make up direct light pretty quickly and easily actually on top of it. Yeah, but new, but overcast light is not just different in color. It's also going to not cast l shadows with hard edges. So how do Absolutely. you move from the sh different shadow shapes from overcast to direct? Right. Then you just start saying, well, um, I'm going, one of the easiest ways is to start out because usually overcast light also isn't as bright right. as direct light, right? So you're already in more of a neutral lighting. And so let's say this rock right here, if that was in neutral light, the brightest bright on that rock is going to be lower than what it is now. So I can just start scrubbing over direct light wherever that's hitting. And then wherever I'm not painting that direct light is going to automatically start to feel like a shadow. And then I can okay. start to push shadows cooler and darker if I want to. Um, so starting in that neutral position is a good place to understand what, what shapes you're dealing with 
and kind of what your big kind of light, medium, dark shapes are, and then you can go. Oh, forward. that's really good information. All right, I want to look at, uh, before we move on, I want to, you've brought some images of how you <laughs> digitally do this, but I just want to look at a couple of these barn pieces. Sure. Um, if you have a favorite, by all means, tell me, but I'm picking some of mine here. Oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. <laughs> so how much of this is invented and how much of this is, was actually there? Um, the spirit of that was there. Okay. Um, I mean, it's the, the barn itself is actually pretty close, um, to what was there and up in park city. And then, um, I was down a hill looking up at it. The light was coming down like that on the, on the piece. Um, there were some clouds, but I definitely, I made up most of the cloud shapes of how they fit together. Um, and I pushed kind of the bounce light feel and then most of what's in front of the barn. I made all that up. All these these pieces of plywood and boards yeah. and stuff? Tarps and stuff. I, I made all that up. Um, and then I think wow. the hole in the barn where you can see through into it, mm -hmm. into the dark, I think I made a lot of that up too. Um, it was further down and I kind of brought it up and kind of shoved it into that space. So you're obviously so, thinking about linear perspective when you're adding that sort of stuff in there. Yeah, and this is almost three. I had to kind of cut out the three point a little bit out of this, um, even though I'm looking up at it in a way that technically I should be doing three point perspective in it. Right. So, three point know, meaning a point on the bottom for those who don't know. So there's two point two on the sides and then one on the bottom when you want a dramatic feel like you're looking up at something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, you know, that the piece mostly holds together. If I were to paint it to, again, now I maybe, I would just push a few of those lines a little differently in perspective, but again, it feels mostly right. So you believe it. Yeah, it feels right to me. And if it feels like the sun is coming directly, here's another one of those lighting situations. It's coming, it's like right on top of it, right on top of it yeah. because the peak, or what do you call this? The, uh, the eaves of the barn, are just barely skimming the plywood and two by fours and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And that's why actually I put those um, big boards in like the big plywood sheets is because they told the story of the cast shadow in a way that wasn't happening otherwise. Otherwise it was really? just a line of dark along the ground and it felt really flat. And it wasn't until I showed those peeking out into the light, like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes you believe it. And it's that little key of evidence that your mind needs to believe the scene. Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. That is really cool. Okay, man. I'm learning a ton here. Let's look at this one. You, I, I love, you do a lot. These, these kind of lighting situations are so impressive to me because you can't capture them on any camera the subtlety in light, you're either gonna get a beautiful mountain shot or you're gonna get a nice exposure on the building. So you really have to know something about lighting to pull this off. That's the hope. And that's why I love these scenes. I love this time of day because it gives you strong shapes, right? It silhouettes things rather than fragments it with lots of uh, light and dark and light and dark. But, um, but it's also a scene, like you say, that's hard to capture in a photo. And so it's more of a feeling and an emotion. So I'm constantly, even if I don't 
take a photo of something at night at this time of day. I love going out and just like observing and just trying to memorize what's happening. And for me, plein air painting is a lot of what you, how you're changing your eye to see and perceive things um, rather than what you're coming away with as a product. Like you could go plein air paint and wipe it off after every time and still largely get what you need to get from mm. that experience. And because do you do that? Your, your, do you go out and would what, you plain air paint something like this just to make sure that you get the feel of that lighting? Sometimes, but I usually what I do plain air for me is is a tool and a it's a learning exercise. It's not a final product. When I started painting at Blue Sky, a lot more a lot more plain air painting. I was looking at it as a final product, and I was spending far too long and. Um, and doing bigger paintings than I should. And I was just take, you know, I was petting that painting for two, three, four hours. And it just was, you know, the light was so different. And I was trying to do a finished piece rather than really understand light in nature. And for me, at least, it's really important to separate study from performance, from practice from performance, right? Um, my wife, like I said, is a dancer. And all the time, I, I go to a lot of modern dance and I really love modern dance actually, because there's so many comparisons to traditional painting. But um, the the worst dances are those where they have not realized what they want to say yet. And so the performance becomes a practice and they're working their problems out on stage. And mm. I don't want to see that. I want to see the performance. And so it's the same with plein air painting for me. Once I stopped trying to do finished paintings on location and I started to just look at it as um, as a practice, then it changed the way that I did it. And Scott Christensen, the painter, was the one that really helped me kind mm. of gain the confidence to do that. Where I went to and went to a workshop of his and and just saw the way that he was approaching plein air painting and study. I was like, oh, like I can paint small, I can paint quick, and I can paint um, just garbage paintings that I'm just trying to understand something. Right. And so he, one of the things that he does is he specifically tries to like use throwaway pieces of canvas or like corners of something to do a sketch on so that it forces it to not be a finished piece, right? The second that you have a piece that's like fully constrained and you're trying to go to the edges, your mind goes into finish mode and it doesn't allow you to study as easily, at least not. Yeah. Me. And you do that a lot. I've seen these sort of tiles, like painting tiles. Yeah. yeah. And it allows me to really work quickly and small and solve a problem visually and, and not think of it as a finished piece. Hmm. And then I can take that information and apply it to the finish. So coming back to this piece, I often am not doing planar paintings of the actual thing. Sometimes I will if I have time and if I'm able and if I'm there. But a lot of times when I'm in a farming community just for a few hours, I don't have time. There's so much to see that I don't have time to just set up and paint. So. I'm going to go and just take as many photos as I can and then maybe set up and paint just a time of day of that area so that I'm I'm just getting a feel for it. So even other days when I try and go out and plein air paint, I may never do a painting of that thing, but I'm adding to my library and my understanding of light in a way that then I can bring that information to the table when I'm doing this piece, digitally enhancing it in a way that then I can make my reference say what I want it to say because I have those pieces that I'm collecting along the way. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And that's actually a really good segue. Let's talk about some of your, 
process. So tell me a little bit about what you sent here. These are some kind of digital mockups. This is basically the exact, not exact, but the, the reference that I started with, right? Versus the, uh, where I ended up. Digitally okay. Okay. It. So it kind of shows you a start and end point. And then there's a lot of steps in between that we can look at as well to kind of get a feeling for it and, and kind of talk about reasons why I made some of the choices I did. But with each of them, I'm really just trying to refine the story and decide what I want to say. I'm drawing back to often what I felt when I was there on location. Because I remember something that Tim Lawson said echoed what you hear a lot of successful painters say, which is the, the transition from um, painter to artist happens when you stop painting what you see and you start painting what you feel about what you see. Mm. And so that, that idea of painting what you feel about a place rather than just a thing that you saw, for me, is a big, big reason that I am an artist because I want to be a storyteller. Right. And, and sometimes it's just emotional, simple stories. When I, when I say storyteller, sometimes people get the idea that I'm talking about, like being an illustrator and you don't have to illustrate completely, um, the, the pieces or the story. Sometimes it really is more nebulous, but, but I guess my point is this hopefully represents an indication of how I'm making some of those choices of what I felt about a place or an idea rather than just what I saw. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting to look at these. So, so to be clear, you're taking a, a photo reference like this and you're doing this digitally. You're turning it into this and then this is the reference you'll use at least at the start for the painting. Correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now this one down here, I'm really curious about because so it's, it's lit, it's cloudy. Mm -hmm. So there's really no hard direct light on the barn. But then what you mm -hmm. did over here is really cool where you've got this sort of like gr really soft grazing light over the top that really mm -hmm. works. But if I were to try and interpret it, I can't. So why does it work? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know um, what I mean? If I were to try and figure out what the lighting is actually coming from, I couldn't possibly define it. Right. And some of that is... Like I, I'm really fascinated with the idea of poetry and painting, right? Okay. And what creates poetry? Because we we all know the difference between prose and poetry. And sometimes, for me at least, good poetry is two plus two equals five, right? Good prose is two plus two equals four. And poetry, there's something in between the lines. There's some combination of words that create an image that's deeper and more than the sum of its parts, right? Mm. And there's some magic that happens in there that um, that you can't quite define, but we know it when we hear it. And it's like, oh, like that touches my soul in a deep resonant way. And it just used five words to do it. And so I love that visually and I'm really searching for that visually and what that means. Um, I don't have all the answers to that. I'm asking more questions than answer, than I have answers for right now. But we each, we both know pieces and paintings that when you see it, you, un, you, you know it, right? Like it's, there's two plus two equals five and just the paint strokes themselves add up to something bigger than just a thing. 
And so I've been exploring. That. So to this point, to your point on this piece, I had an idea that I wanted to, to talk about. So on the top of that barn, there's a date beyond the name of the, the farmer right mm-hmm. up at the very top. It says 1914. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about what was going on in 1914. Because I loved this barn. It was huge. It was beautiful. It was a big dairy barn in Vermont. And and I liked this shot of it compositionally, but like thematically, it just seems a little vanilla to me. It didn't mm-hmm. really talk about the importance of this structure and and maybe what it meant, like especially back in 1914, like how this would have been a huge building mm-hmm. in that area, right? Um, and dwarfed everything around it and just all the stories of the people who were there at that time that was really important to me. And so I wanted to say something more. I wanted some of that visual poetry to come out and for you to feel something more than a thing of like, oh, that's a big barn. So I looked at the date and I started thinking, well, what was going on then in the country? World War I had just started in Europe, um, but it wasn't here yet in the States. And so, but within a few years, that war would reach into these rural communities in really powerful and shocking ways, right? The U.S. was still very isolated in pockets at that time. There wasn't an interstate system. And so these were really kind of low-lying, isolated places where people felt really sheltered and safe. Hence the reason why nobody wanted to get into an international war, because it didn't seem to apply to them mm-hmm. initially. And so I wanted to get the feeling across that these places were going to be affected by this really powerful event soon. And, but it was peaceful at the time. So I liked that idea of the light moving up the barn, this idea that these are the last few moments of this peaceful day before nighttime is coming and it's going to come and it's gonna be hard and long but it still feels peaceful right now. Like we don't fully know what's coming. We just feel the peace at the moment, but but something is looming and coming. So I wanted a feeling of weight to work up that that mm. piece of, of the barn, right? And I didn't want it to be just this hard edge shadow going across that. I want it to be a soft and subtle transition, which will happen as clouds are occluding things or as, you know, it'll happen in nature for sure, that softness. But I wanted that to echo this idea of this like peaceful transition before the war. So wow. that's why I choices. Yeah, now, someone that's, looking at this, that's incredible. They're not going to look at this and know like everything that I just said. Or any of it. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty right. profound concept for you would never obviously come to that. But it does right. feel I, that it, way, though. The title itself is Before the War. Oh, right? well, then you might. And yeah. so somebody looking at the title and then looking at the date on the painting that I've kept, like maybe they could start to think about those things a little bit. Yeah, right. But beyond all of that, and this, this is a very much a film concept, that you shouldn't have to hear what characters are saying to know what, to feel what I want you to feel from And you film, don't, right? If no. I, if I build my work as an artist, as a color artist in a film, you should feel what I want you to feel and you shouldn't even be aware of it because I've worked it into the structure of what's going on. Because there are certain universalities of emotion that are connected to color and value, right? Um, a, a recent 
um, exercise that I've been doing in workshops that I really love is that I'll turn on different classical pieces of music and have people just paint on a canvas what they're feeling for that, you know, five, sometimes eight, 10 minute piece. Like not even try and make anything representational, just grab color and apply color to a canvas in the way that emotionally is being fed to you by this music. And it's amazing how, yes, there's differences, but there's a surprising amount of similarities. You could go around the room and say, oh, well, this piece is really dark and, and brooding and powerful, and the strokes and the color are gonna show that. And this piece is really light and lilting and pensive, and so the colors are gonna reflect that. Different color choices for each individual for sure, but the tone, the ferocity of application, the way that it is, like that's pretty universal. And so I think there's universalities that can happen in paint as well in a way that somebody can look at this and feel this piece of the end of the day um, with the ominous kind of strength of this shape. Mm -hmm. Like as long as I can get that at a base emotional level, then the other things can be communicated with with time and with other information. Yeah, I love that. So the other thing I've noticed about this that's sort of a subtle detail, but it makes such a difference is how you've created the light you can see through the building into the sky. It's a really nice, right. nice touch there. And, and the more I look at it, the more I can sort of imagine the sun setting behind me and the maybe hills or mountains behind me sort of um, starting to um, cast a shadow on the barn. It's kind of how right. it feels to me. Yeah. Totally. It's totally. just really beautiful. So again, if it feels right, it is right. Like if I can just, if I can connect the warmth on this barn to the warmth that's hitting the, that distant sky, then your bot, your mind will just associate the two and say, oh, well, there must be sun, warm sun hitting both of those. I don't question it anymore. I have to have more spelled out than that. It's enough. Mm -hmm. But you do usually need to have like two out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, right? right like you right. do need to have at least two, maybe three um, pieces of evidence helping your mind to come to that conclusion. Otherwise, okay. it, it will start to feel isolated. Hmm. Okay. Well, why don't you share your screen now and show us what you brought? So here are some examples that I want to show of just process. Um, the before and after that we looked at before is fine, but it really doesn't tell the whole story of how I got to how I was thinking visually throughout these. Um, so here, like this one probably has fewer layers than typical, but you can see here is the, my initial reference which has some lovely things about it. Um, but I'm just gonna step down through just different ideas I was trying. Like what if there's what if there's trees there? What if there's a door that's open? What if there what if the light in the windows is actually reflecting the sunset instead of looking through the barn itself? Um, oh my gosh. What if there's reflection further down, right? Um what if the bottom is open? Um Wait, 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 go um, back to the bottom clouds. open. It's happening so fast. Go back to the bottom open. Oh, okay, okay. But even that, there was another version that, um, like, what if it was open? Oh, wow, that's interesting. Stuff on the bottom, which I liked that, but it seemed to take away from the focus. It does. Like, I wanted, 
yeah. wanted you to think up here. So it looks cool. It looks cool, but, but you're right. You didn't. Yeah. But what if, what if the color really is significantly different? Um, let's get these clouds out of the way. Um, and so before it didn't have that, it just was closed up. Right. And this is another, another kind of why in this piece is that really where you can see the back open, like, I don't know, maybe it would be at this point. Maybe because of my perspective, the back of the barn is actually like down here. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's a super skinny barn, but no one's going to question it. Like you said, it's just, if it feels right, it is right. And you can see some of the things that I'm doing to push this time of day is I needed the barn to be darker. Um, and so I had to darken everything down. Um, and so just different tools to do that. Um, And visually, I wanted wanted the composition to bring you down into the barn, where these hills kind of roll away from it and pull and soften the the impact of it. Yeah. And so I wanted the upward thrust to be to be bigger, so push mm. the push the trees down from there. So that is that's kind of how I'm thinking about some of those things. Here's another example from the haystacks. <laughs> you see this? Okay. I can. Yeah. So this is what I started. Um, actually, here was the storm general. Let's see. So start here, right? Where I thought, well, what if it That's was where you it started? Was the Holy. That's where I started. <laughs> I say, well, what if I just push, pull the contrast back and it feels like it's snowing a little bit? What if I gave just a little hint that there's a background? What if I push even more snow over it, like the snow is coming down in front of you? Um, and what if I expanded that out? But you're not over. actually rendering little snowflakes. You're just changing the values and it looks like yeah, snow. Exactly. Huh. exactly. Um, and then here's a couple other variations. Oh, that um, one's, you, they really painted on that one a lot digitally. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And trying different. Wow. Trying to change the light direction. So those are some that didn't make it into the. Into Did you ever paint that snowy one that you were just showing us? I don't remember seeing that one. Um, I did one. I did one actually like this um, and mm. then ended up. I can't remember. I think I maybe just threw it. I either threw it away or I painted over it. Oh, um, yeah, I painted over it. Actually, the one that's pink, um, kind of pinkish okay. evening glow, that started out this way. Okay. Um, but it just wasn't it unresolved in a way that mm. I just didn't feel happy about it. So sometimes um, you so can't know some... until the painting, you've painted it, even, even though you Absolutely. do all this prep. Absolutely. And things will feel different um, on on a big scale than they do on the small study. It's like the small study is great, but the big one doesn't work. Um, so that's kind of where I ended up for the overcast. Wow. Theme. But I was just trying a ton of different ideas. Um, 
just tr yeah, just trying anything I could. I tried a version where I had mountains in the background of everything, but it pulled too much reality in and took it away from this kind of ethereal symbolic place. Mm. It's weird. I needed less reality to be, to feel more real. <laughs> and so I had to go back and kind of eliminate even this. I realized that it took the focus too much in the background from what the other pieces were like as a piece. It was fine, but as, um, it diminished the foreground where I wanted you to be more. Right. And so, so I had to get rid of it. So, so that's an interesting idea where you have to marry or, or you have to prioritize concept over composition sometimes. Cause that was Absolutely. a great looking painting maybe. I mean, potentially a great looking painting, but it's like, nope, that's not what my concept was. So not today. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I found that all the time in film that I would do a beautiful painting and the art director would come around and say, that is a beautiful painting, but it's not the story we're telling right now. Um, like, it seems okay. like film really affected you that that experience with them really affected how you think and how you approach painting. It very much did. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, concept or just all that all these tools are a means to an end for you to tell a story. And right. if it's not telling the story, then get rid of it or change it. Like, don't be married to what's going on so much. Like with this piece, for example, um, I wanted to simplify it down a ton. Let me just take it down to where it was originally. Uh, this is the photo that I that I took at the farm, and and to this point, I should add, sometimes I don't go into a farm, or usually I'm not going to a place that I'm getting reference from and experiencing nature, trying to superimpose a theme on it, right? I'm just, it's really fishing, right? You're just gathering information and then you're starting to see patterns emerge and certain things will suggest themselves to you through the reference. So um, I'm generally not going and setting up a tractor or setting up a, you know, a farm or whatever in the exactly the way that I want sometimes, but usually not. Um, so, so I think theme can follow naturally from the reference that you have. It's not like I have to try and superimpose it on top of this, but I am trying to take the things that are naturally there and to push them into a new place that seems interesting to me. Hmm. So I'm taking this color, putting some different color over the top. You can kind of see that shift. Usually I know my camera anyway, uh, sucks the yellow out of things a little bit. So I'm trying to put that back in to things. So let me ask um, you a question about that. This is, I mean, just for people who really like, well, myself, I mean, I'm always curious about this stuff, but some artists work with just a cell phone camera. Some feel like they need the best of the best. What are you, what do you feel like and what are you using? Yeah, I use a Canon SLR. Um, it's not the best of the best. It's kind of mid range. Okay. Um, I find that for me, that usually takes photos better than my iPhone can. Okay. In really low light scenarios, that my SLR doesn't know what to do with that. And sometimes the, the iPhone can be better. Okay. The unfortunate part about most camera phones is that they've been maximized to, um, in their algorithm, to take pictures for online content, which usually means juicing up the color and pushing the values. Right. Because that works better on that gets more clicks so when something has more contrast and more saturation. So even when I do take something with my phone camera or even with my SLR, 
almost immediately, I'm usually um, pulling the contrast back and lessening the contrast, and I am um, pulling the saturation down because I know that they're, the image that I'm getting from that machine from that tool is lying to me about what it actually was. Do you also turn off the HDR? Um, yes. You do. Okay. Because I, what HDR usually is doing is it's taking the midtones and it's fragmenting the contrast of the midtones. But what, how do you, if you're using an SLR and you're preparing for this, are you just snapping photos and then fixing the, uh, the limited dynamic range in post or are you bracketing and shooting on some of these photos and shooting into the shadows, getting one exposure, shooting the lights and getting another exposure? Mm -hmm. How do you handle that? Yeah, a little bit of both. I usually will try and get an over and underexposed version of everything that I'm doing. And then sometimes I find, especially if I zoom out and get a wide shot, it's pretty good at balancing both of those. Okay. And so then I can then I can get some of the better kind of drawing shots. Anyway, I just basically take a bunch of photos. I'll try I'll try both of those things. And oh, then, you will. And then I'll take it in with the best information I have of both places and and then start to push it in Photoshop. So here's some examples of how I would do that. I, I like these these shadows, thought those were cool, but I wanted to see what if, if I played around with those, but ultimately neither of those felt right. So I just got rid of, get rid of, got rid of them all together. And, and then I pushed up my levels because I wanted, I wanted to experiment with this to see how compressed I could get things in my low range, how light I could pull the bottom range up and still have it read. And then what I'll do sometimes is actually take this um, color bar and I'll, if I'm in a weird color range, and in fact, I will... What's the color bar? Is it is that just like primary red, yellow, and blue? Cause it... it is, as close as I can get. This, okay. this cut, off, cut it off when I threw it in from another... Let's see if I can... Typically, the red's longer, is what you're saying? Um, no, I guess what I'm saying is it cut it off. Um, usually, I have a better color bar that has... It'll have like a black and white on top, so it'll oh. do... So I'll like do... Hold on... So I'll like throw absolute black and then white on there too. Oh, um, interesting. Just so that I know where my goalposts are. It's like, no, okay, I can kind of pull it around and say, okay, even my lightest light, I'm still like 20% down from my white, maybe 15. And right. my darkest dark, I'm still like 80%, like no darker than 80, maybe 70% on my darks. So that gives me kind of helps me get my range. And then when I'm working in a specific color range, especially if I were, you know, just for argument's sake, let's say I was going to really go really saturated somewhere uh, on a range, it allows me to kind of see where I'm at in con comparison to my primary so I can mix it better on my palette. Because as you know, like this, you're, you could stare at this and you could stare at this for long enough and your eyes would Kind of adjust and tell you that you're looking at the same color right you white balance mentally yeah right because your eye you always want to bring things back into the midline color wise and value wise and everything um models do it with their pose like we're just hardwired to bring things to the center of of the spectrum so i find that if i'm if i've got some type of color and value gauge along the side it helps me to get a better truer 
sense of where I'm really at. You know, one thing I'm learning from so, you too is that with, well, with my work, I'm trying to think if I've ever done a painting that didn't have a black, black and a white, white in it. But you've done a lot of paintings where you're just riding in the middle value range and you're not even coming close to black or white. Right. And part of that is because I, I feel like that's where a lot of poetry lies. When you, when I look at paintings that I really love in museums, usually they're playing in that center range more. It's more challenging artistically and, and exciting artistically to do that. And also I feel like many times it's truer to life. It's actually pretty rare that you'll see a black, black and a white, white places around you. And, and often when I'm out painting or just anywhere, I'll like hold up the blackest thing I have, like pull out my phone or something that has a black screen and I'll hold it up to what I'm seeing. That's the darkest dark and just try and gauge where they're at by comparison. Hmm. And I'm often surprised at just how much lighter than black that object is, even though my mind's telling me it's black. So trying to get back to truth in life, I find that often things are a little more true in the middle. Oh man. Yeah. That's, that's awesome information. One thing in closing that's really helped me in my learning process is thinking of um, learning as kind of a three-point triangle mm -hmm. that I have work from, from life and from nature, right? Because there's so much variety in nature that you can't make up out of your head. That if you just try and make stuff up all the time, you're going to become a bad copy of your own ideas and you're going to run out of ideas and that's going to look weak and uninformed. Hmm. So I go to nature and I go to life to get inspired. And then I find that I need to go back to the studio. And that's the other part of the corner is the studio practice of interpreting nature in, um, in a way that you can make decisions on your own. Right. Mm -hmm. And then practicing and just kind of, um, getting mileage of, of how you're interpreting nature. And then the other part of that triangle would be looking at the way that other people are interpreting nature, right? And that happens through master copies. It happens through like all of like, whether it's Instagram or museums or other visual stimuli, other, you know, going to modern dance concerts, whatever it is, kind of the inspiration of seeing how other people interpret life is really important. And mm -hmm. so then after I'm there for a while, I'm ready to go back to nature itself and make my own decisions for nature. And then go back to the studio and decide how I'm going to stylize those elements. Because every time we pick up a brush or even start to observe nature with the intent of making a reproduction of it, we're already making choices about editing. There's no way that we can ever say, I'm painting exactly what I see. Like any interpretation visually is an interpretation and an edit that you're making choices, right? Yeah. So once we acknowledge that, Say I'm even if I say that I'm painting everything, I never am. I'm making choices of what I'm going to leave in, what I'm going to leave out, and all of that. So then I get to decide. Okay, if everything is an editing choice, now I can decide how much I'm going to stylize, how little I'm going to stylize, what colors I'm going to shift it. It's not a matter of saying it's reality or diversion from reality. It's a matter of saying what is my interpretation of this information and where am I going to go with it? Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm glad you offered that because one of the questions that I've had for, for several of the other landscape painters that I've interviewed is where they fall on the line between um, being true to what they see and being like a documentary artist of landscape. 
and an editing landscape and creating sort of a fiction of what they saw that's more idealized. And I've gotten, you know, I mean, everyone I've interviewed has been somewhere else on the spectrum. But then after hearing what you just said, you're suggesting that no one is on the extreme end of being a true documentary artist, that everyone is fictionalizing on some level because they're making creative decisions, even if they don't think they are. I think that's what I'm hearing I you would saying. say that's accurate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's great. So you kind of just, you normally when I close these things, I ask if you have any advice for the listeners. You kind of just gave a great piece of advice, but I'm going to ask the question anyway, see if there's something else that's maybe a little unrelated. What advice would you give an aspiring young artist that wants to become a painter like yourself? Hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was getting out of my undergrad, I asked Bob Barrett this question, like, how am I going to, how am I going to be unique? How am I going to say something different? And he, he brought up the point and said, look, you may not reinterpret the art world and, and create a completely new genre of art or a new way of, of applying paint. Like so many people had done that before that if that's your goal is to just say, just come up with a new thing then or a new kind of genre you may be disappointed but what you have to bring to the table is the stories that are uniquely yours that nobody else can tell because nobody has had your life and experience and so if you focus on the stories you want to tell then the way that you interpret that and the way you tell it that will come with time and you won't have to make that up and you won't have to push it or force it back to our conversation about style that your style will find you just as a natural extension of what's interesting to you about the world and how you want, you know, how you want to combine things. Um, parenthetically, I would say for students, especially if they are copying people like copy a lot of people and copy broad differences in styles, right? Like I love, um, I love Devencorn and I love Sargent. And I, and I love some of the modernists and the abstractionists of how they were dealing with space. And I love, you know, some of the more, much more contemporary traditional painters and, and Russian painters. So I feel like the more you can broaden your, your perspective, the more unique you're going to be and the more kind of tools you'll have to say something contemporary and, and unique to you. But to the point, it's your stories that set you apart. And so... Mm really think about what you have to say about the world um, rather than just trying to parrot somebody else's technical view of how they see the world, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. You know, and it makes me think of an analogy. You ever had a kid, of, do any of your three kids ever say they don't like something before they've even tried it? Has that ever happened with any of your three kids? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sure. I had, I have, I've had, I have one kid who's done that a few times and I'm just like, You've never even tried it. Just try the food. You might like it. And I think we're guilty of that sometimes as artists to just jump right into what we think we are, like pick a style because it's a thing that appeals to us right now before we've really tried all the other options. And it, to me, it seems like a disservice. You know, it's like, I'm only going to eat this dessert and I'm never going to try any of the dessert. And we have no idea what dessert we might like more or might be more suited to us. Um, yes. Yeah. And I, you just kind of have to live and paint and paint and paint until it finds you in a way. 
Totally. And I think for me, there's a lot of places at the table for a lot of different styles and ways that people see the world. We spend so much time trying to draw these dogmatic boxes and say, well, this is art, but this isn't art. And it's like, well, there's a lot of ways to interpret the world. And so, yeah, don't be afraid to try on some different things. And for something, some things will feel right and other things won't. And then your work will be different as a result. Yeah. Well, David, thanks a ton for doing this. It's been a huge honor to have you on the show. As I said before, I'm a huge fan and I learned a ton. So it was great to have you. Thank you, Jeff. It's a privilege to be with you. And I think equally highly of your work and I've just learned so much. And I love that you are not afraid to learn and ask questions. And that's such a beautiful, beautiful element that makes your work so good and is really the secret to a longevity as an artist and joy as an artist, right? It's to ask questions. And I find that the longer I go, the fewer answers I have. Like I had a lot of great answers 15 years ago of how to paint. And now I've got a lot more questions now. Amen. Yeah, I appreciate Thank that. You, Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends. And if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.